out there was where they had just killed Zerkawi. Yep. And the reason he was out there was the reason all the rest of the bad guys that were at that level, not your little street criminal, the dude that was running the show, they were all out there in the countryside, right? Yep. Because Americans weren't patrolling out there anymore. Yep. And they didn't see Americans much, so they felt safer. Mm-hmm. And then they could do whatever they want. They would build, even the V-bids, they would build out there and then drive them into Baghdad and place them in wherever they were going to use them. Right. And so there was a lot of work out there. This is the Perseverance Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, today's episode is brought to you by Black Horse Rifle Company, a veteran-owned and operated business specializing in custom tools, knives, and firearm parts. Our quality is a tribute to those with whom we served at the tip of our nation's spear. Always forward. You can reach them at blackhorserifle.com and on all social platforms at Black Horse Rifle. Alt Bellum Group is a veteran-owned and operated internet marketing services company specializing in helping small businesses and brands meet their goals through content and social media marketing. You can find them at altbellumgroup.com and on all social platforms at altbellumgroup. This episode of the podcast, part two of our conversation with my friend Randy Nance. Randy served as an EMT prior to the attacks of September 11th, 2001, and then enlisted the Army as 11 Bravo, served in OIF-1 with 3rd ID, and then went to selection to become a Green Beret. That's where we pick up part two of our story, episode 007, Randy Nance. So when you guys got back... From that first rotation to Iraq, how long was it before you went to selection? So I got back uh, August 25th of 2003. I remember because it's three days before my birthday. You know, all the other times when NTC and everything else, whether it was my ex-wife's birthday or holiday, somehow the Army just doesn't quite let you make it there for those. Right. I made it home for my birthday. Of course. You know, but uh, of course we were all happy that. It was one of the happiest days of my life, you know what I mean? I came back in, uh, I can't remember what the field is named there on Fort Stewart. I remember that group, that fifth group, it's it's Gabriel Field, but I don't remember what the field's called in uh, at Fort Stewart. But, you know, that's where we went back and got to see our kids, you know, or back up with my family. What was that like? Wow, man. You know what I mean? Uh, I've still got a picture somewhere. I could probably find it on my phone and show you in a little bit. You know, I just had the biggest smile on my face. You know what I mean? I remember, you know, they gave you four uniforms before you went over. Yep. Three of them were completely trashed. I ne- I saved one for my going home trip. Yep. And the other ones, man, were just <laughs> ridiculous. They were worn out. You no know doubt. I mean? Yeah. Definitely well used. And I have on a brand new uniform, you know what I mean? And it was... Uh, It was that same prideful moment where, you know what I mean, you feel like you just won the Super Bowl or something. Yeah. Um, You know, it's it's a great day. It's an amazing day. And, uh, you know, it had been eight months 
and that's been the longest of course i've been separated from my family and not seeing my kids yeah you know what i mean so man such a such a huge day you know what i mean yep and, and to be back home but uh so that was august 25th uh december 5th i went down and took the pt test for the sf recruiters that were on uh fort stewart mm-hmm. and then january i went to selection january 04 nice yeah, well, it wasn't so nice. You know, the funny thing is I go in there, and on December 5th, after I take, I pass my PT test for them, you know what I mean? And, of course, I, I still maxed it out, except for the run, because I just got back. However, I still had high enough, because you can't just pass the Army, even infantry standard, you know, and then them send you. You have to do above and beyond. Yeah. So I did enough to get through there, you know what I mean? And I go back to their office. And one of them's a seventh group guy. One of them's a fifth group guy. And then they have this old crusty dude. I don't know. You know, I still, I don't remember his name to this day. I still remember the other two guys. Um, and, you know, he, I saw him less. And certainly after this day, I never saw this guy again. Uh, he probably was another group guy, just an older dude. I'm not really sure. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? But, you know, we're, we go in there and they're so, all right. So, uh, all right. So you, you did well enough. Uh, when do you want to go? And I'm like, well, when's the soonest I can go? And they're like, all right, I like this guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, the old crusty dude's in the corner next to a board, and he's like, they, they they call my name. Hey, what do you think? He goes, well, he's looking up at the calendar that's on their wall, and he's looking at He says, you know what? I think uh, if we do his paperwork now, he can still get in the January class. And I said, sign me up. And the old dude wheels around in the chair, you know, and says, hey, don't you be having me do all this paperwork if you're not going to show up. (laughs) I said, Hey, if I tell you I'm going to be there, I'm going to be there. You know what I mean? Yep. Just like that. Like, all right, we, all right, we like this guy. Cole, man, we're going to get you signed up. All right, man. We'll, you know, go home. Your orders will come in and yada, yada, yada. How old were you at this point? 33. Wow. 33. And, uh, I, so I go, (laughs) I go home, right? And, you know, now I'm all, yes, this is, this is happening. You know what I mean? Uh, and, and then I start thinking about it. I'm like, you know, I'm in Texas. I'm in Georgia now, as far north as I've ever been. Mm-hmm. For the most, that was at that time. Yeah. As far as north as I've ever been. And it gets a little cold here. And I'm thinking, man, that's in North Carolina. January, man. Oh, my, wait a minute. That's, that's going to be cold. Yep. It's going to be real cold. And I'm like, oh my God. You know, after the guy's whole scene and me tell him, hey, I'm going to be there if I tell you. I'm like, oof. So I can't really back out of this, not legitimately. You know what I mean? Yep. And save face. So I go. So I'm thinking, okay, well, look, I'm just going to go ask him. So a couple of days later, I walk back up to the recruiter station and I go in there. You know, and luckily for me, there's only one of them. And, it, and it's the guy that was the seventh group guy on a dive team. He still got his cool guy picture with the. He, you know, a, uh, some kind of, uh, spear gun, spear gun, you know, and all this other high speed equipment, you know, that's behind the desk. And so I said, Hey, look, Sarn, and I'm, I'm a Texas guy. Right. And, uh, this is as far North as I've been. So I realize in January, it's going to be really cold in North Carolina. And he's like, Oh yeah, yep. It's going to be. And I'm like, well, so what do I do to prepare for that? 
And this guy let off the heartiest laugh you've ever heard, the heartiest manliest laugh you've ever heard in your life. I bet. Especially a guy that was on the dive team. I bet he laughed. He laughed at me, man. And when he stops, he says, look here, son. You can't prepare for suck. You have to embrace it. Nice. And I was like, great. <laughs> Not exactly the guidance I was looking for, you know. But the and, guidance you were going to consistently get the rest exactly of your time in the what army. I was going to get, you know. And uh, so I go home and I'm like, oh, God. So this is it, man. I'm just going to have to man up. And, you know, the good thing is when you do go in the, in the winter courses, the vegetation is a lot less mm-hmm. and it's beat back. You know what I mean? So going through the uh, draws in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, if you haven't done that, I can't express to you what those are like right here on this podcast. Right. You know, there are small ones, but there's all sizes, but then there are very large crevices that are, they're just huge, a lot of them. You know what I mean? They got ones called Little Muddy, and they got one that's called Big Muddy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And uh, it's all famous down there off of Camp McCall for the, uh, uh, which is actually where we're talking about, out yep. at Camp McCall, yep. not at Fort Bragg specifically. And Camp McCall is about 45 minutes away. Mm-hmm. But, you know, man, they, they couldn't have picked a better spot to do that kind of a land nav course. You know, and then and then also it was very cold, and then it snowed and it iced while I was there. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so uh, what I found when it snowed, what made that easier is you could see the trails. Right? Mm-hmm. If there was snow on the ground, that was open. If it wasn't, that then it wasn't. So you could also get through draws easier that way. Certainly in the middle of the night when you can't really see. Yeah. And the vegetation in some of these draws is like, you think you just walked into the belly of some monster. Yeah. They won't let go of you. It's trying to grab all your gear. I mean, we had guys that lost their rubber duckies going through draws there. Wow. Not a good thing. No. You definitely don't want to come back without your rubber ducky. Or Negative. Your fake rifle. And so, uh, man, uh, you know, it was it was the first time that an 18X-ray had quit, had voluntarily quit. There hadn't been one since they started back up, up in 2003 up until this point. Mm-hmm. There hadn't been one. But, you know, when it got that cold, yeah, we had one quit because he didn't want to get out of his fart sack in the morning. And so, you know, uh, it was brutal, man. And uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure I might have even taken some uh, frostbite on my feet. Um, the worst thing that happened to me uh, in selection was I got blisters on the heels of my feet. Mm. And even when I went through the infantry basic training, and you have to do the 25 mile at the end, which they don't even do anymore. Really? They don't do it anymore? I think they do 12 and a half. That's no, crazy. They don't do the 25 mile. I'm like, what? That's insane. It's a rite of passage. It is. You have to do that. You, it drives me crazy when it they does. do that, man. It really does. Like, how, you can't change tradition like that. Man, because well, there's a reason it's there. Exactly. It's proven. It's a proving track record. So, so the reality is, uh, so we're doing, you know, selection is broke up into periods, right? One, they switch up the schedule every time so you can't get intel from the guys before on what day you're going to do what. Right. And so, like, for instance, the day we went out and did the obstacle course was 19 degrees. Mm. 19 degrees. And when you're in the, certainly in selection, but most of the Q course, if you're in a section that's in the field 
until we got to Robin Sage at the end, you didn't get to wear snivel gear. Yep. It was an honor code violation never to return if you got caught with it on. And so we're out there 19 degrees. Now, sure, you got pants and long sleeves on, but it's a winter uniform. But I mean, a, a summer uniform. But even if you had the thicker winter one on, it didn't just, matter. It didn't matter. You know, it was worse to wear the winter one because when it got wet, it didn't dry mm-hmm. like the summer one would. So everybody had four summer uniforms, and which is what you have to report to with. You have to have four uniforms. And so, man, you know, I'll never forget that day because it was so cold. I was like, um, I was, um, I want to say I was uh, 143 or maybe 147. Now I can't remember. It's terrible. However, that's your number, right? So they started at one. Mm-hmm. And the obstacle course is pretty significant. Their nasty Nick has, I, I'm thinking at least 15 ropes, uh, you know, and, and, and in different parts. There is one, the second obstacle is a 30-foot rope that you have to climb to the top and yep. come back down. Yep. And these are big-ass ropes. These yep. aren't little nice climbing ropes. and They don't have any knots or anything like that. And at this point, when I finally got to start, I couldn't even feel my hands anymore. They were blood red from how cold they were. And uh, Had you it, been taught how to climb a rope at this point? Not, no. I mean, a little bit. They showed us what there, but no. That was my first dealings with a rope. Oh, man. Oh, it was brutal. <clears throat> and, uh, but I was, you know, I, I was in, I was still strong enough and it, you know, was still athletically inclined enough that I took to it and it was fine. But, you know, uh, you did to your, you know, you really didn't have any concept of what that was. First, you did those, that first week was basically of you going through the physical aspect. And the smoke fest, right? You did the, you did your PT test, you did the obstacle course, you did rifle and log PT. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and it was all those things in that first week, basically. And then your second week, you move into what is your uh, land nap portion, right? And then they do take you in, extensively train you everything there is to ever, ever know about land nav with just a compass mm-hmm. and a map. Yep. You know what I mean? And a, and a triangle. Yep. And a piece of paper and a pen. I mean, a pencil. So they teach you how to do that, including uh, techniques of if you get lost in the middle of nowhere, because everybody's going to at some point. No doubt. And then you don't know where you are on that map. You have to find a point on that map. You know exactly where you are. Yeah. So then you can find yourself and then reroute to wherever you need to go. And so we were on the practical exercises. So part, there's no point sitter. Mm-hmm. And then you're just going to a point sometimes in the woods on a stick. Yep. Um, and uh, they were, it, it, I take that back. Those, they did have point sitters, but one of them was even the guy was in the back of a truck on the side of a road. However, you know, uh, I got behind on my PEs, right? Mm-hmm. And on the first day, I only got two out of four. And so the second day, they put me with another guy. Interestingly enough, everybody called him Mac. <laughs> I don't remember if his last name was McAfee like yours is. Yeah. It may have very well been, but everybody called him Mac. That guy went on to be a Delta, huh. uh, a medic. But uh, so they put me with him because he got all four of his points. So we worked together that second day, fair points. Back out on the third day, after the, so I get to my second point and I'm looking at a candy striped road on the map, right? Which means hardball. Mm-hmm. And I get to a road that's not a hardball, it is an, a major improved road, which should have been my indication. Yep. But I'm overthinking it. See the guy in the truck. 
I should have just walked over and asked him then. That would have settled the whole thing, but I keep going, right? And I keep going, and I keep going until I hit the actual hardball road that's the perimeter, five, 575 or whatever it is out there by Camp McCall. Mm-hmm. And everybody knew that road from selection on because that was the perimeter. And if you crossed that road and got caught, you were kicked out of the course because mm-hmm. you, you went out of the boundaries. However, I hit that road that I knew. I was like, oh, my God. And as it was, that road that I – and I should have known because now it's well past a pace count of anywhere that this point should be. Yep, yep. But I, for some reason, I keep going, keep going until I hit that road. Then I got to go back, and I hit that point. And, of course, it is the right point. And I'm like, so now that was my second point. And I'm way, way behind because of which, right? Yeah. So I, I've i got an hour and a half left, and my next point is six clicks away. Ooh. Oh, it's a hump. Yeah. So I know I'm going to be running, right? And I had done what everybody said you should do when you go to selection, right? I took my jungle boots. I took the shank out of the bottom of the deal. I cut the cups out of the back. These things, and I put new Vibram soles on. They were like tennis shoes. So I take off from this point, and as it, as it turns out, I have to cross Big Muddy, uh, draw the draw Big Muddy, and it's huge. This thing, you go down in, right? It's a gorge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fortunately for me, I find a spot that's really, you know, between mid-calf and ankle deep, where there are parts you'd have to go way steep or even higher to cross, right? Mm-hmm. So I was lucky that way. However, when I got to the other side, my boots were a little loose, Already, and I should have either changed my socks out or tightened the boots, something. But I'm like, I don't have time, and so I keep going, and I'm running. I make it with 15 minutes to spare, which is, you know, six clicks in an hour and a half. You're moving. Yeah. You are moving. And, however, I could feel blisters starting, right? And then they continually got worse every day after that. Mm. And, you know, even when I got to the star course, unfortunately, I still hadn't squared my land nav away enough to be one of those guys who got his first four points on the first day and he's done. Right. So uh, I ended up going all three days. I still got more than enough points. I think in three days you have to get eight points. and I got nine or ten. But um, my problem was these blisters were getting worse every day. And now I couldn't put my other boots on. Right, because my feet were swollen enough. These boots were the only ones that I could keep them in. Oh, wow. And uh, there were points um, that I would uh, stop because my feet, legs, my feet were hurting so bad. I would stop at a creek and break through the ice and stick my feet down in them until they felt frozen. Right. And then I didn't feel them and they didn't hurt as much. And then I would move out some more. Pretty smart. Yeah. A little cryotherapy. <laughs> yeah. So uh, they, the, the, the funny, uh, one of my funny stories of, of the actual star course, the last day, right? I got my first point was only from where I started was only three and a half clicks. And I'm like, yes, you know, and I get to that point, And then my next point is crossing scuba road. It went further south. And, you know, I was already pretty far south. So, you know, at that point, if you get another point going south, you're going to cross Scuba Road. And this is also famous. This is one of the things that they take you down and show you when in selection, they walk you around the course. Mm-hmm. One of your, They'll have a cadre take each 
group of guys and you will walk all the way around. He will kind of orient you to the place. And down south is called Scuba Road, right? And it's it's waist deep at the at the at the shallowest part. Mm-hmm. You know, but there's also down trees underneath it that you have to navigate walking through. That's rough. Yeah, and it's 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 big. You're not going to get around it, right? And and supposedly because there also had to be, you know, happened to be on the map the word fork, and I can't remember what the first word. There was two words, and fork mm-hmm. was the word. And at that K, there was supposed to be a crossing that you get was shallower, right? But I searched all over, right there where that K is in the middle of the night, you know, at one or two o'clock in the morning, and never could find this supposed safe travel in <laughs> <laughs> shallower water. So I go back to the main part where you can cross Scuba Road, and this thing's frozen over. Frozen. I'm taking my rubber ducky, and I'm breaking ice so I can cross this thing. Wow. And uh, I get about halfway, right? And, and now I'm a little winded, you know what I mean, from swinging this thing and breaking the ice. And so I stop and take a couple of breaths, and I hear this, no joke. And I'm like, so I stop and I look around, you know, and I hear it again. And when you're in the, when you're in selection, certain in this part, right, for the first week, when you're doing those PT tests and all that stuff, it's a little different. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But once you go out of the Q star course or anytime you do any kind of movement, whether it was a run or a ruck, you weren't allowed to talk to any of the other ca- candidates at all. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, you know, now I'm in the middle of the star course and it's dark 30 and I hear somebody shivering. There's no doubt that's what it was. It was loud. You know what I mean? So I think about it, right? And I, I, I break a little bit more ice and, and get a little closer to the other side and I stop and sure enough, I'm still hearing it. So I'm like, at this point as a person, I'm like, you know, I really need to check and make sure this person's okay because they sound, they, the way it sounded to me, they were inside scuba road, right? Yeah. They weren't on the sides. They were somewhere in the middle like I was, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't see them and there's trees. It's dark. There's no telling where this was. Right. But I could tell they were cold. I could tell it was right there. So I, I then as a human say, okay, I'm going to, I said, Hey, are you okay? And nothing. I said, look, I know we're not supposed to talk, but man, you need to let me know if you're not okay. Nothing, no more, nothing. Okay, so I keep breaking ice. I get to the other side, and I think I heard it again between there, right? And I, so I get to the other side. Now I'm coming out, and uh, I say one more time. I'm saying, "Hey, I'm fixing to walk off from here. So if you're not okay, you need to let me know now." Otherwise, uh, I'm taking off. Not a word. Mm. All I can figure to this date is that may have been a cadre seeing if you were going to check on your buddy or if you were just going to. I don't really know because I know what I heard. I heard it more. I heard it several times. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I never saw anybody. No one ever. I never. No one ever talked about that. When everybody got back at the end of the day, there wasn't anybody missing. There wasn't anybody that got caught freezing or had to go to the hospital or anything. So it was just nothing. I never heard another word about it. Wow. The thing is, so then I've got to go up the hill, up over this hill and down another one. And in between two hills, 
was where that point was. Hmm. I get to that point and I'm frozen solid from the waist down because of the water. Frozen solid. My pants are hard. Wow. And I get to the tent and I hand the guy my I hand the guy my piece of paper, right? Which this is what you you did. You got your point from the one person and then you plotted it. You went to the next one, you handed them that sheet and they wrote down your next one. Yep. Yep. So I hand it to the guy. And he takes one look at me and he's like, you know, we're not supposed to do this, but um, you look pretty cold. He said, uh, so I'm going to take my time writing this point down. Why don't you go sit over there by the fire for a few minutes and thaw out? I was like, oh, thank you, sir. <laughs> oh, I bet. <laughs> thank you, sir. I bet. And literally he said he let me sit there for about 10, 15 minutes next to the fire. And then he called me back over. I took my point and moved out. And then it was 19 clicks away. Woo. 19 clicks away, and it went all the way up into call what was Jurassic Park, which is a part where there had been a fire a few years back, and everything was laid over. But, man, what a movement that was. And so, 19 clicks, holy cow. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I went through uh, and uh, made it through that part and got to the last part, which is like your team week. And now it's not, it was no longer a full week. It was about half a week. It was really three days. Mm-hmm. And so they put you together with a team, right? Now they mix this up again. And literally there were so many people that we had two teams. There was 18 guys wow. per stick, basically. Yep. And we, they separate us all out and then they send us to chow, right? And it's pea gravel that you walk from in front of the huts all the way around to the chow hall. And I couldn't keep up with my team walking in the pea gravel. Oh, wow. Because of the blisters on my heel. And now, you know, I've been going into the medic station every every day, basically. And and not like some people go there looking for a medical pass, right? Right. But those guys are Vietnam veterans. You'd have to have a broken appendage yeah. for them to give you a medical pass. No doubt. They'll tell you real quick, you want out, you can voluntarily withdraw. Yeah. I went there for medical attention, you know, so the guy would give me Motrin, and then they gave me... Uh, um, like second skin or something like that? Yeah, what is moleskin? Moleskin, yeah. They yep. give me moleskin yep. to cut out and, and try to cover, you know, leave a space around where I had the blisters. Yep. Because these things were about the size of a half dollar now. Oh, wow. And they were into the meat. Mm. Into the meat. I've never seen blisters like this, in fact. And so, uh, so you know, uh, after we get back from chow, because everybody noticed, right? I couldn't keep up walking with them to or from chow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's two captains and they come over with some of the other that are E7s and E6s, right, that are in the course. And they all come over around my bunk and all of a sudden I look up and everybody's standing there looking at me they're like, hey, we need to see your feet. And I'm like, I said, wait, what? They said, yeah, we need to see your feet. I'm like, what do you mean you need to see my feet? They said, we need to know what we're working with. And it's hard to argue with that logic, right? Yeah. So I take my boots off so they can see, right? And literally the instant I took them off where they could all see every single man in that room turned his head another direction. Oh, wow. In an instant. And no one for the rest of the night would look at me or talk to me. No joke. Damn. They thought there was no way in hell I was making it. Mm. And in fact, we went on the next 48 hours to move 82 clicks. Holy cow. And for those of you who don't know, that's 50 miles is what that is in a 48-hour period. Wow. And I was not the one holding us back. 
In fact, I was the one helped leading the charge. One of the captains, who was from Ranger Battalion, was actually leading us in navigational-wise, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, I was one of the motivators. Never held us up. And uh, there was a couple of guys that were. One of them might have had a broke ankle. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So, understandably, it be a lot harder for that guy to move. And it, it really was. Um, you know, and it wasn't very long before you don't make your time hack. Yeah. And and as that goes, so our first movement was maybe three and a half clicks. Then went to five, then to eight, then 12, 12, 12. So anytime you make your, you don't make your time hack, your movement becomes longer. Gotcha. And in these things, you're doing something, right? You're carrying heavy weight. They've got some sort of obstacle for you there to uh, then put together a symbol and then move somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And one of those things happened to be a car it was in a sand road right and there's all kind of junk in the car it had rims but it didn't have no tires hmm. you cannot believe how hard it was to push this car in the sand oh i bet incredibly hard and we had to push it for like a mile oh wow long enough that it was like you know this is when you're thinking you know these are some sick bastards mm -hmm. sick bastards that come up with this you know this is like medieval stuff that you know they're just making it as hard and is the biggest suck fest possible just for that sole fact yep. until you get back and ask them about it and they tell you no in fact every one of these scenarios happened to a team real world somewhere and that's why we do them wow including that car and oh, by the way, the team had to push it 12 miles, not one. Wow. The actual team that did it in Africa. It was the only car available for a long, long ways. It may have been the Middle East. I think it was Africa, though. Either one of those barren stretch. Yeah. Right? And it was the only one, the only way, and that's why it had to happen. And so they made it happen. Damn. And that's so, impressive. Yeah. So, so then I was like, holy crap. So all that stuff we did, somebody actually did. Did the same thing, but in real life. So then you did get a deeper appreciation for it. You know what I mean? So at the end of the day, even the last night, when we actually finally got to sleep, but when I say sleep, if I remember right, it was 2.30 or 3.30 in the morning mm -hmm. when we hit our little alpha alpha. Yeah. And we had to be up at 5.30 to then meet the cadre at 6.00 right down the road so we could finish. Yep. And in fact, that's what it was. I was the one that woke us all up at 5.30 in the morning. Nobody else even woke up, but me woke up to my watch alarm after two days, 50 miles and no sleep. And two hours of sleep, I woke everybody up. Wow. And nobody wanted to get up. You know what I mean? There was a few, but you know, there was some motivation that had to take place there. Oh, I'm sure. This team up and moving and us to get there and meet the cadre all to then load up a bunch of heavy weight and can move it for several miles. You know what I mean? With big metal bars. So I think we had six to eight dudes underneath uh -huh. and then their rucks, somebody else was carrying. So there was no easy job in this thing. Right. Right. And then all of a sudden it just indexed it. It was over. We finished selection. They let us actually watch the Super Bowl, which was, Great, sweet for me in a way because I'm a, I'm a Cowboys fan, born and raised Cowboys fan. I don't even want to talk about it right now, right? Right. I don't even want to talk about the Cowboys. Me neither. I mean, me neither. What Jerry Jones has done to that organization is a sham. <sighs> wow. Hey, but you, you and your family got rich. Good for you. Good for you. 
Yep. But you fleeced the fans doing it. No doubt. And for what? A losing record. Yep. Thank you very much. Yep. Thank you very much. And, and make and making the organization the laughing stock of the NFL pretty much. Good job, pal. Yeah. Good job. So anyway, it's 2004. Do you remember what Super Bowl that was? So I'll give you a hint, and it will just narrow it down. So the Giants got in as at, at 10 and 4, I think, as a wild card. And the first team to ever come from wild card status to the Super Bowl and actually win. Mm -hmm. So although I can't stand the Giants because I'm a Cowboys fan, right? Yeah. I had a greater hate for the Patriots and, and Tom Brady. So to see that man get beat in the Super Bowl by the, uh, by at least an NFC team, right? Yeah. Uh, was like the best thing that could have happened at the end of selection. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because first you just come in right off the road, right after all the, you know, two hours of sleep, 50 miles and all that weight. Uh, you got to come in and you got to do all your peer evaluations, which you have to evaluate each person. And then we had 18. Mm. So uh, not only that, you have to answer a psychological evaluation that's covered with a bubble, right? Mm -hmm. And there's 330 of those questions. If you don't read every single one of them and answer it, you know, people would do just like on a test that they got so tired, they just start straight. A, B, C, E, A, B, C. You don't know what you may be answering. Right. And those people all got to go talk to a psychologist because of which, mm -hmm. right? Um, because there are some weird questions on there. Like, do you like your sister? No, I mean, do you really like your sister? <laughs> like flowers, <laughs> and, you know, and just some other really weird stuff that you wouldn't, you know, regardless. Or do you like to drink excessively? Do you beat your wife? You know, so just imagine if you just answered yes to that or colored that bubble because you straight. Anyway, you had to do all that first. And then they let us watch the Super Bowl. You know, somebody had asked before we went out on team week, mm -hmm. like, there's no way in hell you're watching the Super Bowl, buddy. You better worry about passing selection. Yeah. Get out of here. Yeah. But then they turned around and let us, you know, they, they gave us that little cookie because we started with like 218 people. And I think really only 60 something finished. Wow. Yeah. And as it turned out for me, when you're doing those peer evaluations, you not only evaluate each person, you then have a pink card for the guy you think that shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. And you have a blue card for the guy everybody should be like, right? Yep. And uh, and so on my team, I got seven of those blue cards. Nice. Yeah. And so I was one of the honor graduates up on the stage at the end of selection. Awesome. You know what I mean? Yep. At the end of the day. That's and pretty so, rad. Yeah. And it was solely because of those blisters. And I had to push through and man through all that stuff did 50 miles on those things so you can imagine by the time i got back to fort stewart uh you know i'd seen people on a soft shoe profile and the infantry that's not a good thing people make fun of you and you're a douchebag oh yeah i go back dude they took one look at my feet at the at the clinic and they're like what the hell did you do you know what i mean and they dude i was on the soft shoe profile for over 30 days wow over 30 days I couldn't put boots on, man. So did you go into the Q course on a soft shoe profile? No. Uh, no, because because I finished in January. That's when all the officer candidate schools are letting out, too. Okay. 
so that they get priority slots in airborne. So literally, since I was, if, now if I was been airborne qualified already, mm-hmm. then I would have just went right through. Right? right, right. However, I had to get airborne qualified first, and it was not until July that they could get me a slot. I'm really? A private. So you, know you were like sitting still for six months Dude, after you made to my unit, and I was like the man. Are you serious? Oh, I was so like, they man, sent I, you back yeah. to the line. Yeah. But, but dude, past they, selection. I didn't even have to go to work anymore. Really? Because you're, you're waiting on a cue. Yeah, and the infantry guys, they were like, oh, I was like the man, bro. Oh, I bet. I was the man. Because before I went, they were all, certainly, it was one of my senior NCOs that all sat me down. Hey, look, man, you know, we know, you, you know you're, you're set broke on this, but you've got to really think about it, man. P- plenty of people finish and don't get selected. So it doesn't matter if, you, you know, they tried everything they do to tell me you know, that I shouldn't be doing this because yeah. I might fail. Right. You know what I mean? And then when I came back and I passed, dude, I, I didn't even have to go to work anymore. I was a private. Wow. I was a private. They told me to do whatever I needed to do. You know, now they did try to talk me into going to ENTC with them. Mm-hmm. They were supposed to send me to the board. So that's the one thing they didn't do, which, as it turns out, had I just got my E5 as I'm rolling out and then I showed up in the Q course and they expected me to point. Now, being older, I, I'm certain I could have done that and overcome it, right? Mm-hmm. But it certainly was in my benefit that I was still just an E4 as I went through the Q course. Because then you're also evaluated on that level of leadership. Yep. You know that makes I mean? sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And had I been an E5 that never led any troops, never did any time as an E5 except pen it on and leave, it would have, you know, that could have changed things for me. Who certainly. really know? Yeah. Because they would have expected... Now, for me to be an NCO, which I would have zero experience actually doing it. Oh, yeah, you know definitely. I mean? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, um, so then I, the, the good thing was, you know, I told him, I'm not going to NTC with you guys. And, and literally, they went for two more weeks because it was going to save them two days in the field, which is great. You know, that, that works out. But the, 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 end of the moral of that story is, you get another extra week in the NTC box. Yeah. And that, that's an ass whipping just nobody likes. Right. They strap it to you out there. Those yeah. Guys, well, of course, they know the terrain. They know exactly how everybody's going to perform. They are American, so they know your tactics. Yep. And they light your ass up. I mean, they, you know, it was probably good that my command structure went through that right before we left. I think it was good for everybody. Because the valuable, le- well, but you know, it, it is good for everybody, but it's more important that your command structure gets its ass kicked like No that. doubt. You yeah. know what I mean? Because they all walk around because they're officers. They think they're important just because they have, they're an officer. Yep. You know, and then, and then they, as they go along in their career, they kind of think that they can't do any wrong. You go to NTC, you find out real quick that isn't the case. Yeah, definitely. And dude, and they murder them inside those little AARs afterwards. <laughs> they embarrass the piss out of them. I bet. But, you know, it's a humbling experience, and I think they needed it. You yeah, know what I mean? Definitely. And, uh, you know, I, I think my command structure performed much better because of which. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, but they were going to go back this time. Right? And I even ran in. Now we have a new battalion commander that was always a light guy. And, you know, he catches me outside the battalion somewhere, you know, a little bit before I left. And he's like, hey, Nance, come here. And I go there. Hey, sir. He's like, hey, Private Nance, man. I, uh, so I heard you pad selection, man. Great job. Congratulations. 
you do remember those guys were behind us the whole time, right? <laughs> exactly what he says to me. Wow. You know what I'm thinking? Well, sir, you weren't exactly with us when we did that. Ooh. Not, I Ooh. didn't, of course, Snap. say that. Yeah. And, 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 and Lieutenant Colonel Wood was a stud. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I, I, I liked him. He's really good. But I realized he wasn't with us when we did all this. Right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, but no one in their right mind would have been in front of us. No one in their right mind would have been in front of us. Right. Because we were shooting everything. Yeah. Everything. And we have turrets. We don't just have rifles. We have turrets. And then all the way up to big turrets. You yep. know what I mean? So the the amount of destruction, the, the, the waste we laid it on the way, you wouldn't want to be out in front of that because bad things can happen up there. No doubt. But, you know, I, I was like, no, you know, and he's like, uh, and we'll send you to ranger school. I've heard that before. And I'm like, sir, sir, <laughs> sir, I've been trying to go to ranger school since I got to this unit. And literally since I was up at battalion, I finally narrowed it down and they were about to give me a hard slot. Literally when then we got the orders for NTC and they knew we were already going to go. Yep. So then I, you know, it didn't happen. Because yep. of course they're not going to send me to ranger school now. Right. You know what I mean? And at that unit, their policy was you had to be a squad leader above. So he tells me, he says, hey, Sergeant, I mean, Nan, I was still specialist Nance, but hey, specialist Nance, we'll, we'll send you to ranger school. I said, sir, I've been trying to go to ranger school since I got to this unit. You know the policy. It's an E6 or above. And sir, frankly, look around. How many E6s and above in this unit are going to want to go to ranger school? Yeah. We both knew the answer to that. It's zero. Zero. There, I can't think of maybe one or two E6s that would have made it through. Right. So, uh, you know, he says, no, Sarnance, I've put the word out. Anybody, any private up wants to go to ranger school, we'll send them now. Because 3rd ID, certainly at Fort Stewart, used to give 15 slots a quarter away because no one wanted to go. Wow. But I... Private Nance and PFC Nance couldn't get one. They wouldn't give it to me. And about the time they were, then we get orders to deploy. There goes that. Yeah. And uh, so I said, well, sir, if you put the word out, you might want to do that again. Because I know plenty of E3s and E4s right now that would go to Ranger School, but they're not getting the opportunity. Yeah. And so that's where we left. He's, well, good luck. Nance, you know, I... Maybe I'll see you out on an ODA somewhere someday. I said, oh, you will, sir. Nice. And uh, and I moved on, you know, and then they were supposed to send me to the board. I went to PLDC mm-hmm. during that time period. That is the one thing I did do because I wanted to knock it out. Yeah. I didn't realize they had it rolled up in a three-week course, and it was PLDC, B-knock all together when you got to the Q course, and I was going to have to go through it anyway. Oh, that sucks. Which I did. Yeah. yeah, because the one in the regular army was gay. 30 days. Very. Of, oh, my God. Very, that's very, when, very gay. <laughs> that's when I began drinking coffee. Because you're in a class eight hours a day with a wah, 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 wah. And that's what it sounds like. Totally. And uh, so since you got to go home on Sunday for a few hours, I would go buy coffee every time and creamer and make sure we were fully stocked. Yep. And like filling that thing up. It was straight diesel coffee. I'm not talking about measuring it out like it's supposed to be. I'm talking about filling that little container up with coffee grains. Yep. You know, and so uh, that's where I started drinking coffee. And then, 
you know, I get to the Q course, then I finally get back to brag and I go into the Q course. And then the first thing I have to do is go to that three week course. Now you don't, you, if you failed out, then you don't get your BNOC, right? Mm-hmm. You get your PLDC, but you won't get BNOC because some of the field time is that you go through in the Q course will be used for your field time for BNOC. Gotcha. And so you have to actually graduate the course to then qualify for the BNOC portion. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, so, uh, you know, uh, but it was, man, it was such an exciting time. You know what I mean? Because now I was going to get to do some things in the Army that I wanted to do all along. You know, and, uh, and then I think to myself, you know, I think back even a few years before that, what I was doing and and even 10 years where I was tragically at that time. And I think, well, if you'd have told me I was going to be going to try to be a green beret, which would have been my dream since the seventies that I would, I would have laughed in your face. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you never know what life and world events are going to dictate what happens. Yeah. You know, as we found out last year. Definitely. So, definitely. you know, it affected everybody, not just some people. Yep. Everybody. And so you never know when that's going to happen. That's what I tell my kids all the time. Don't, hey, don't just forego think, you know, you don't have to worry about this or drugs or this or that or get in trouble, you know, because you do. Because you don't know what may happen later that will put you in a different position. Right. You know what I mean? And so, uh, you know, it's... That's one of the lessons I make sure that I teach them because, you know, for me, uh, one of the things I had to answer through all the way through the Q course and even in the military and then for security clearance was, you know, I got arrested for pot when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. It's a very small amount, but it doesn't matter. Back then they took you to jail. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was 1986. I was a senior in high school, you know, and I spent overnight, went and saw the JP. I'd do six months probation or pay a fine, you know, but I've had to answer that. Ever since, mm-hmm. it's still on my record. I was seventeen, you know. When I do background checks, even when I went for little league for my kids, so I could coach, it came up during that during that background check. But I put it on there because I had a feeling it would. Yeah, and you know, it's it's one of those things. Since mine wasn't major and it was a small amount, it's something that you can reasonably explain. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where if it had been a burglar or a theft or an assault. We're talking a whole other story. Yeah. And so, but it doesn't change the fact that it's embarrassing. Sure. You know, and then have to tell somebody and, and you know, or have a commander ask you why you deserve to be in this unit. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? After some of the things you've done, or how do we know you're not going to do this again? Right. Know, or something to that effect. And uh, so it's, it's, you know, you should live your life to where you don't have to do that. Definitely. You know what I mean? It's it's all about decisions that you make. And so once I got in the Q course, you know what I mean? Uh, I just met some great dudes. I, we had a really good time over the, the two years I was in the course. And, man, you know, the level and the amount of training you get, you just can't, you know, put into words. What was your MOS? Uh, Echo. Echo? I was, I was the communications guy. Nice. Nice. Yep. And, you know, uh, I didn't exactly get to pick it, but I did put that as my first pick. Awesome. Yep. Um, I didn't want to be a Delta because I've already done the medic thing and plus, you know, some of the stuff they have to do. Yeah. 
uh, I'm not really, I don't really want to do that. Well, point. I mean, like Sockham is so intense. Oh man, it is. So intense. Those guys are, those guys are very highly skilled though. They really are. So those medics are no joke. Yeah. I mean, them and PJ medics. Yep. Yep. Are right up there with probably some of the best ER. Oh, absolutely. Docs in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. No doubt. Because the level of trauma that they have to deal with just in their training is. Well, they're 12 hours short of a PA when they get out. They have their paramedics license and they're 12 hours short of a PA. Yep. So they, you know, and then they have light veterinary skills, light OBGYN skills, light dentistry skills. You know, when you show up at a village somewhere, that guy is, you know, not only is he your doctor. That's right. He's now the local village doctor, the local village OBGYN. Yeah, good luck with that. Veteran, the dentist. You know, so, you know, they, they are very highly trained and, you know, I'm almost a little jealous of the medics for that reason. And then they're just revered as the smart guy always on the team, just instantly, right? right? They don't even have to prove it, nothing. They're just, I thought that was the fox. <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing about the fox is nobody really wants to be the fox because then you have to go out of your MOS and go to another school. Yep. You know what I mean? Although I will say the fox we had on our team, although he – he retired and got out, you know what I mean? Because I guess the Army service wasn't exactly what he expected because uh, he was an X-ray. Mm-hmm. Smart, really smart guy. Builds rifles now of his own company. But I'll tell you, dude, he went to Fox School. Became He was the honor graduate at Fox at the Fox course. Nice. The matrix this guy put together is what was kept us busy. Not only with the intel we were collecting, but what everybody else was collecting in the theater. Mm-hmm. And... The matrix he built out was just unbelievable. Nice. I mean, just, you know, a top rate job, you know, somebody that, that did their job to the fullest. Mm-hmm. Not just that he could do it, that probably anybody could do it. Yeah. You know, and, and it was unfortunate that we lost him. You know, first group in the Army both lost him, and uh, he went on to do other things. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, but you you can't blame the guy, you know what I mean? It, it, one, he did his time. He came in and served where most never do. Right. And he was highly successful. Yeah. I mean, he became a Green Beret. Yeah. In the short period that he was in the Army. So um, he was always good to me and him kept with each, up with each other for several years afterwards. Yeah. Know? But it's been several years now since we've talked. Sure. Yeah. How was your experience at Robin Sage? So Robin Sage was... Uh, a different animal too, because the same thing we had so many people, we ended up with two teams. Mm -hmm. We had two team daddies, right? But two different groups of guys. And I was the combo dude. And, uh, uh, but we, we had a, you know, we had a good group at Robin Sage. The only thing that I hated was we were ones that they put up on the top of this hill that if you walk down this side, it was a nice gentle slope, right? Mm-hmm. All the way down. But the side they brought us up was like this. And it was one of those that kept going forever. And now you're having to carry all your equipment up this thing. Yep. Right. And what I remember the most about it, honestly, is for the longest, for the first week or so, we had a rooster. And this little son of a bitch would start, you know, crowing. At 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> it was driving me nuts. I bet. And I was never so happy when we killed that thing. I don't know why we didn't do it sooner because, man, that thing would just be crowing at 3.30 in the middle. And, and, you know, 
and you're right there in the camp with it. There's no way you can, you know, it's loud. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. And, you know, other than that, man, it went pretty smooth for us, really. Uh, we had a good group of guys, and and me and one other guy basically ran the commo. Mm-hmm. You know I mean? Because they do have some tricks in there, and you had a certain way you had to report back. You know, and if you didn't do that right, then they would send a zero back to you. And the zero meant it would zero out your radio. As soon oh, wow. as you turn the radio on, it downloads what they sent you, then it would zero out your radio and you had to start all over. Oh, snap. Oh, yeah. Time set changeover. Yeah. And, <laughs> and one of the other team had an E7, right? And I won't mention his name, although I still remember it to this day. Guy didn't know what the hell he was doing, right? Should have never been there. Mm-hmm. But even in special operations, there's a 10% rule. Yep. yep. And the dichotomy he, of society, man. He definitely fell into that 10%. And, you know, then they wanted him to go out with me and do it, right? Because he hadn't been doing combo at all. Mm-hmm. I just handled it all, me and the other guy named Jay. You uh, get through the Robin Sage, graduate freaking Q course. Now you're getting your Green Beret. Like, what was that like after Man. all you had already been through in your life to achieve something that is held at that high of a standard and with that high of regard? Man, it was uh, it was really hard to process. You know what I mean? Some of it almost didn't seem real. Mm-hmm. It's like you're trying to look outside yourself, at yourself, and you think, man, you know, it was it was such a huge thing. Now, of course, I was proud. You know what I mean? And uh, and excited because now I'm just ready to get to group and start really learning my job. Yeah, you know what I mean. And so, uh. But, you know, going through those ceremonies, donning the bray, having that tab on your shoulder, you know what I mean? It just brings another level of confidence or of, you know, a, a proven track record or, you know, you show a, compens- a propensity to get things done. Yeah. You know what I mean? You yeah. demonstrate that you can do that. Mm-hmm. And I think about it, dude, when we talked about training earlier and all kinds of whether it's a civilian training that you don't get. Um, that people promise you that you're going to, you know, in that two year period, I had $4 million worth of training dumped into me. Wow. And you just, you know, it's so big. It's hard to, you know, and that, that was, of course, there are parts of the Q course that are as hard as Ranger School, but it's not all compacted in a two month period. Right. Right. It's, it's, and the hardest thing is being a student in the Army for two years. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because, you know, up until this point, when you're in basic training, you, you're, you're a student, right? So mm-hmm. you, you don't know any other thing. Right. But once you get out of basic training, you go to your unit and now you, you know, infiltrate and become a part of the army. And now you're a soldier in whatever unit you're in, you have certain liberties, you know what I mean? And certain things you can do and can't do. And, you know, responsibilities. Yeah. You go back to being a student, you know, all that changes. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's like, now you're back to being the lowest common denominator. Right. And with the lowest rank. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you have no responsibility. You have no nothing, which is what you're being graded on the entire time you're in the military. Oh, yeah. You know, so you have to perform in school. So you make up for that mm-hmm. because you're going to get rated one way or the other. Sure. And that's what all your school records are going to demonstrate. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, um, just, I don't know, man, you know, and then showing up to group 
and I, I get to fifth group. The cool thing is I signed in at 101st, and at this point, if you if I would have been 101st soldier, I was fixing to go on a, a week or a 10-day field problem, which, you know, used to you'd never heard of in a reception hall, but as 101st learned over, you know, the last, certainly now we're talking from today, 20, 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um the lessons they learned that, you know, they need to find out what kind of a soldier they had coming in right off the bat yeah. before you assigned them to a unit and a job. You know what I mean? And then you were going to have to demonstrate that you could still do your job as a soldier in whatever capacity that is in reception. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Which I thought was great. Yeah. But I was glad I didn't have to do it. You know what right. I mean? And I was yeah. in a group and I was just coming through to, to sign in, to get the group. And then to show up in the parking lot, you know, and have the command sergeant major for our battalion come down and meet us. Now, the reason he did that is because uh, this was the first time fifth group was going to have a reprieve. So this next deployment was only going to be our battalion, not the whole group. Oh, wow. Which it had been since September 11th. Mm-hmm. Right. Fifth group had maintained a presence in the Middle East the entire time from 2001 all the way to 2006. Wow. So when we deployed in August of 2006, only one battalion went back, and that was 2nd Battalion, who I was with. Now, had things worked out, I would have done that eight-month deployment, come back, and then I would have been off for a year and a half. Mm -hmm. Because now, the next rotation, 1st and 3rd Battalion would have went over, and 2nd Battalion, mine, would have stayed back. And in fact, that's what they did. Mm -hmm. So I already had Ranger School and Sephardic lined up. Yeah which are two two-month schools. But, you know, the level of training I would have gotten through those two things are just unprecedented. You know, first, everybody Definitely. knows what a, a leadership school, ranger school is. Yeah. It is the premier leadership school in the Army. Yeah. And in the military, in fact, in my yep. opinion. Oh, yeah. That's why the other branches are sending folks to ranger school all exactly. the freaking time. Even Marines. Yep. And uh, so, um, uh, and then Sephardic, right? Most people don't even know what that is. And if you're not in special operations, it doesn't matter who you are in the Army. You're not getting in. Right. And it is the premier shooting school. Oh, yeah. teach you everything there is to know about shooting and clearing rooms and target practice and every else, blowing doors, you name it. Yep. How to clear. It's it's very extensive and it's a two-month school. So, you know, and that's, if you're going to go to CAG, you have to have, you have to be Sephardic qualified. If you're going to be on yep. a SIF team at group, you had to be Sephardic qualified. Yep. And so I would have, I was headed that direction and, you know, it just didn't work out for me because I got, I got wounded halfway through the rotation. Um, you know, uh, so I, I get to group, the command sergeant major comes out to the parking lot, says, man, we're glad to see you guys. We need you here, you know, but uh, he goes on to, to say that, you know, I've been on 17 deployments. I've been in, you know, I can't remember how many different countries that end in Stan, because mm-hmm. Afghanistan and Pakistan are not the only two. Yep. There's there's a bunch. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know what I mean. And kind of gave his little command speech. You know what I mean. And it was, he was done. He looked directly at me out of like you know twenty guys standing there and said, "I'm really glad to see you." And you know I know exactly where you're going. Now he didn't tell me right at that moment because mm-hmm. then we got ushered up to the captain's office. Well, this guy also had his little command spill ready to go, you know, and I don't remember most of it. But what I do remember is he was like, you know, um, <clears throat> hey, congratulations. 
you know, great job. You're a green beret now. And, uh, and now we're going to put you to work. Yeah. And, you know, here's what I will tell you. You're not always going to have everything you need. You're not always going to have the right equipment. You're not always going to have as many people as you need to have to get the job done. But guess what? I don't care. Because guess what? You're a Green Beret now, and I expect you to make it happen. Yep. And I expect you to keep us all out of prison when you're doing it. <laughs> right. Now get the F out of my office. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, I was like, wow, now this is, you know, now we're, we're this is what I'm talking about. Oh, uh, yeah. That's the mentality that I still have always kind of looked up to with that community is like, hey, I'm going to give you an end state. Yep. And however the hell we get there, as long as I don't wind up in jail, I'm cool with. That's right. You can suck the egg. Yep. I'm just not going to tell you how to suck the egg. That's up to you to decide. Right. And keep us out of prison while you're doing it. Yep. And that's really at that level. That's what really matters. You know, it, can you get the job done at the end of the day and keep everybody out of prison? Yeah, definitely. And that's that. Yeah. So, you know, that was like, bam, you know, and then I get in and, and we're going to Safalk right away, which is uh, what group trains you up every time you're going to deploy you go through a Safalc gotcha. and it's, it's basically the SOPs and what they expect and how to conduct the same thing Sephardic does. You're mm -hmm. going to go through and you're going to run drills with your team on clearing homes, houses, buildings, uh, you like know, a lot of small unit tactics stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you start off on the range mm -hmm. and literally, I think we had like, I want to say 18 to 20 lanes and they were almost full every time. You know what I mean? I shot my rifle, I probably shot a thousand rounds, twelve hundred through the rifle a day, and several hundred through your pistol, right? Nice. And so, by the end of the day, the sea of brass that's laying out there that you had to clean up was—I mean, unbelievable. I bet. You know what I mean? But but you do all your drills, the up drills, your transition drills. There's all these drills you work through in shooting. Yep. So that all that is smooth and refined when you actually need to do it real work. Yeah, you got to build that muscle memory. Yep. And, you know, and so like if it's a transition, so you don't shit the bed when you have a malfunction. Right. You know what I mean? And uh, so uh, you do, you, we went into that, you know what I mean? Uh, literally the first thing they actually, I get there and I go to Raven school, I get the group oh, and before I even sucks. show up, I go to my team and they're like, Oh, Hey, you're going to school. And it's because no one else wanted to go to the Raven school. Right. And I was of course, no one wanted to go to the Raven right, school for you, the uh, listeners yeah. that don't know the Raven <laughs> was like the first small UAV that the army had. And it was literally like a kid's toy. That's how it was put together. Yep. Like when it crashed, it would break so yep. that it wouldn't whole break. thing would fall apart around the camera. Yep. Right. And, and then, then you go recover the camera and put it but back. But you together. also you had to throw this thing. Yep. Right. It didn't it didn't take off. It didn't really have even enough power to keep itself to And there was some technique off. to it too. Oh yeah. It, because it's it's fairly big. It's like one of those big styrofoam ones, but it's not styrofoam. And it's big enough you can't just wield it with one arm and toss it like a baseball or a football. So you, there was a, a slight technique to it, and then you launch this thing in the air, and then you could, you know, depending on how much wind there was, you know, you might have two, three, four hours of flight time. Yep. And, you know, there was a school for it. You had to go, and it was in Yuma. I went to that. I get back, and then they send me to Titusville, right, to the Griffin Group. And then I came back, and we went to Safalc. And then literally right after that, well, 
they, you know, we had a team sergeant that wasn't quite um, to the standard that fifth group expected you to be. And uh, he got removed. Okay. And, you know, at this time, I hear this guy named Pittman coming in, right? And I'm like, I remember that name from the Q course. And I'm trying to think where I remembered that name, right? Mm -hmm. So I call my buddy, who me and him went through the entire Q course together. Now we're both at fifth group, but he's in third battalion. Mm -hmm. I'm in second battalion. I said, hey, man, does... Does uh, Master Sergeant Pittman, does that name ring a bell to you? Does Pittman? I said, I, I remember it somewhere in the Q course. He's like, oh, my God. He says, well, yeah, I remember that. Why? I said, dude, he's going to be my team sergeant. The guy's coming in from from Bragg. He's leaving the Q course, Swick, and he's coming here to be our team sergeant. He's like, oh, my God, dude. You remember that's the gazelle that read the line, led the run in phase two. And I was like, oh, my God. It was one of those runs you never forget, right? Yeah. Because this guy bolted. And I mean, dude, they were sprinting. We This wasn't going to be a light run. This is one of those runs like they do at scuba school with sub sixes. Mm. And we are burning out. And in the beginning, I, I hang up with them. But, man, this is at my max. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Max run. And so – Slowly but surely, I keep falling back just a tiny bit more from the main group. And now there's plenty of dudes behind us. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people falling out. Like, hadn't happened yet in the course. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So the first time I saw this kind of <laughs> this kind of outcome. <clears throat> and uh, as it goes, we go out a mile or two, and we're coming back up by McCall. And... As we get you coming up to this part where there's a fence and you have to take a left. And I see the main group go around the left. And then I keep, I'm running up and I'm coming up to where I'm getting to where I'm going to take the left. And all of a sudden, out of the wood line, this guy comes running out in his BDUs and literally grabs me. I'm like the last point. You, he grabs you, you, and everybody else, pull it, you're out. And he started, and he pulled us all out of the run and started writing us red cards for not keeping up. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, there was only about 10 or 15 guys that finished with Master Sergeant Pittman on that run. Oh, man. And it's because he was a runner. He always was. I mean, you know, he was a skinny dude. He had long legs. Yeah. And I, gazelle was, a, was the correct term. Mm-hmm. So then I'm like, oh, my God. You know, uh, this guy's going to be my team start. So now I know we're fixing to run all the time. Yeah. And, but you know, it was good for us because he came in, he was also, he was a SIF team guy, right? Okay. Yep. Fifth group for years. Yeah. He was actually in a hindsight with a target when September 11th happened. Really? Yep. And then they didn't even take the target down. They left. And every, of course, everybody came back and got ready. Wow. Iraq. Yeah. Wow. And so uh, he went and then he came back. And, you know, his wife probably gave him the same message a lot of wives do. And so he went to Swick to, to keep from getting divorced. Yeah. And he was he told her he would do three years, but a year and a half is all it turned out to be. Mm-hmm. Because when they let my guy go, they called back and pulled him in. And, yep. of course, he said yes. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, our, our week was like this. So we worked out twice a day. We went to the gym at three in the afternoon, but in the mornings we would meet. Monday morning was four miles. 
Tuesday morning was five miles. Wednesday morning was the shortest run we had. It was only three and a half miles. Mm-hmm. But you had to go over this big hill that was in calf country. You know what you're oh, yeah. talking about. I do. And you had, we had to wear our vest with the plates. Nice. Well, it was after I got used to it. You know, yeah. the first run, no one told me, right? And when you run for three and a half miles with that vest, it wore... My nipples raw. Oh, yeah. I, it was such a painful experience. I still have forgotten. It was like two or three weeks a month before this stuff healed up. Yeah. But I learned after that, every Wednesday morning, you put Band-Aids on. Yes, sir. You protected those bad boys before you put that vest on and went running for those three and a half miles. And then Thursday was uh, five miles. <laughs> and Friday was a 10-miler every Friday. Mm. And so, you know, but then we also did a lot of, I mean, we went into full mode training mode. You know what I mean? We were out at the ranges. We were yeah. at the shoot house. You name it. We were out doing it. And uh, and then we deployed uh, August 19th. And the, the the funny thing was, you know, Pitt and them were already there. Our team start and a few of the other guys were there with the PDS. They went up ahead of time. And we were on the last bird. And it's a C5, you know, mm-hmm. and then we take off 13 or 14 hours late, right? And so we were supposed to fly into Rota, Spain, which okay. is where you want to go, right? If you're going to link in Spain, yeah. Rota is much bigger. It's nicer. Everybody has fun. But we lost our spot there, and we ended up in Morant. As soon as we land, a battery didn't pass inspection. And then they had to fly a new battery in. So we were stuck there for three days. So we went out partying every night. Wow. Then we fly into Germany, spend two nights there partying because something else, a toilet, I think a toilet didn't pass. (laughs) Nice. And then we flew into uh, Siganilla, Mm -hmm. uh, which is in the Sicily in the boot of Italy. It's actually Sicily, though, there. Uh, it's, It's unbelievably beautiful on the coast right there. You know, and that, and I always thought naval installations, uh, I always heard, are, are shabby. Mm-hmm. This thing was unbelievable. We had nice condos, you know, and uh, so we were there at night, and literally we drank all night. The, the The pilots were still buying us Irish car bombs at 3.30 in the morning. Oh, wow. And I think we did like 12. No nice. joke. We didn't get to bed until 5 or 6 in the morning, and because we're like, if they're still drinking at 3.30 in the morning, we ain't going nowhere. Oh, yeah. Dude, at 10 o'clock in the morning, someone's banging on all our doors. Y'all got to get to the flight line now. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. I wake up instantly, uh, and me and our senior medic, we were workout partners. We're in the same room, right? And I go running into the toilet, and I puke in the toilet. Get it over. I'm like, man, I was so hungover. I wanted to. You know what I mean? I go yeah. in there, and I get it over with, and I'm like, ah. I come out. He goes, were you just in there throwing up? I was like, yeah, man. I said, I, I, dude, I, I would if I was you before. He's making fun of me, right? <laughs> I was like, all right, man, whatever. But, you know, I'm getting it over with now. Yeah. Because it's coming. So we all run out, and it's a 15-passenger van. And now me and him are the last. And we have to cry, get all the way into the back. You know, and we're in the back. It's only about a 10-minute drive to the flight line. Mm-hmm. That door opens up. How this man did this, I don't know. Probably why he's a green break, right? He launched himself over everyone. 
<laughs> from the back of the van, dude. Yeah. Over everyone and rolls out the door and rolls into the ditch and starts puking. Because in the back of that van, he got sick to his stomach. Yeah. And then, you know, you got 10 or 12 other Green Berets getting off and they're all laughing and making fun of him. And I'm the last one off. So I'm like, hey, buddy. How you doing hey, now? Hey, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Bet you wish you would have done that back in the room like I did. Huh? No doubt. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so, uh, the, you know, the last uh, remarkable thing about that trip was, was the first time I've, you know, certainly uh, my last trip, we came in on a civilian airline into Kuwait City. Mm-hmm. And then you take a bus out. And then we drove everywhere else and back. Right. Well, this time we're flying right into Baghdad in a C5. You know what I mean? Nice. And so each time we stopped, of course, when we took off again, you know, they gave us five pills to sleep on the flight Mm -hmm. when we leave. So every time we used one, you know what I mean? And then when we leave Siganella, I take another one because now we're actually flying into Baghdad. I take another one and I go go to sleep. And I don't know, you know, it's hours later I wake up and, you know, I look around. There's only two or three people awake and there's 50 or 52 of us on the plane. Mm-hmm. And most, of, most every one of those were green berets, including the command SAR major for the battalion and the SAR major for the company. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, are both on the plane. And so we, uh, I wake up and I said, there's only a couple people awake. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'm not even up 30 seconds or a minute. And all of a sudden crackling over the speaker, the guy says, prepare for a combat dive. And I'm like, I was just about to ask somebody, hey, what is, and the next thing I know, the plane uh, Bottom falls takes out of that it. dive. Yep. And apparently it's doing a spiral, but you can't tell inside the plane. Yep. You know, in a C5, you're also sitting face, you're in a box, there's no windows. Yep. It's like a regular plane, but no windows. Yep. And, and to the exception of you're now facing the tail instead of the pilot's. But again, you can't tell any of this because you're just in a box. Yep. And that plane heads down, dude. All you can hear, and it's so loud, is that same sound you hear in every movie that a plane crash of. Yeah. But it's extremely loud. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then the walls of this plane are flexing and making a noise and creaking like you wouldn't. Bl- I'm like, we're coming apart. <laughs> but you can't say a word, man. And the pressure that's on your sinuses from that dive is is unbearable. And then the flares start kicking out. Oh, I don't I don't. They probably I don't know if they did that or not. All I know is the next thing I know, you know, once we finally finished this dive, he flared. He did probably because he flared the plane. It slowed down. But then we still hit the runway hard enough that we bounced. Yep. I've never yep. hit a runway as hard as we hit that day. But even before we stopped, I said, now watch, ain't nothing going to fail inspection here. Is it? They're going to load this shit. I'm fly right back at it, which is exactly what they did. You know what I mean? And, uh, and so that was me coming back into Iraq. And then we literally, we had a very active trip. You know, I had a great team, a great group of guys that, you know, uh, knew the risk but weren't ever going to be one of those teams that just turned into Intel and sat in your team room. Yeah. Because unfortunately it happens. Sure. You know what I mean? We were going to take it to the enemy Mm -hmm. and we were going to meet the enemy where they were. We're going to close with and destroy them. What part of Iraq were you guys in? Uh, We were in uh, Baghdad. Well, we, we stayed in first initially when we flew into country, we went to Taji. Okay. And we were on Taji. Yep. Right. 
but we only had one battalion. So then they determined strategically they didn't have enough ODAs covering the Baghdad area. So literally a month into this thing, maybe two months, I can't remember. It might might not even been two months. may have been close to it. We had to pack everything back up and we moved back into Baghdad, into Mm. the Dura house, right? Which Dura is on the other side of the river from the green zone mm-hmm. uh, from Karada Peninsula. Karada Peninsula was on the same side as the river as the green zone, but then it crossed the bridge into Dura, right? Mm-hmm. The big bridge. Yeah. They always had a tank uh, protecting it. We did. We always had a M1 Abrams tank sitting up there for protection, not us as group, but the conventional forces. Right. And so it was also the act, one of the access points coming into the green zone. Okay. And so, you know, that's where we worked, you know, and, and, and so once we got back there, you know, even at, at Taji, we were going to have a great time because we were far enough from the flagpole. Sure. Right. And, and out there was where they had just killed Zarqawi. Yep. And the reason he was out there was the reason all the rest of the bad guys that were at that level, not your little street criminal, the dude that was running the show, they were all out there in the countryside, right? Yeah. Because Americans weren't patrolling out there anymore. Yeah. And they didn't see Americans much, so they felt safer. Mm-hmm. And then they could do whatever they want. They would build, even the V-bids, they would build out there and then drive them into Baghdad and place them in wherever they were going to use them. Right. And so there was a lot of work out there. Oh, man. A lot of work. You know, and, and, and when we got there, Taji was like Skalik 13. Every 100 meters, there was this big, huge guard tower. But in 06, late in 06, because when we got there, it really, the, the smell of defeat was in the air. Yeah. You know what I mean? There was no one out but us and the bad guys. And when I say us, I mean special operations guys. Right. All the conventional forces stayed hatched up all night. You know, they weren't going outside the wire. And even your infantry units had tactics like you've never heard before. If it was a dirt road because of IEDs, they couldn't go down it anymore. Yeah. If one road had too many IEDs, they would red it or black it out, and you couldn't use that road anymore. Except... Route Tampa. Oh, dude, Tampa was so right bad. By Taji, they couldn't shut it down, but every morning you could set your clock to the IEDs that went off on that road. Yep. So none of that stuff ever made any sense to me, and it right. certainly didn't make anybody any safer. Oh, no. You know no. what I mean? And so, you know, you got to wonder what all these commanders and politicians, how they're making these decisions when you see stuff like that. So every other tower was manned at this point. They didn't even have somebody in every other t- in every tower. Wow! And then when these individuals got shot at, they couldn't return fire. If they saw a, 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 an element, which happened almost daily, of someone in placing an IED waiting for the next convoy to come down Route Tampa, they couldn't even shoot them. Wow! They would have to call back in either case to the command and get permission. And the command, no, the command would then rush out a photography team to try to document what was going on. And then maybe you could shoot back. I'm not kidding. So, you know, my, uh, and we wonder why. <laughs> so, you know, Pitt and our captain went up to that command team and talked to them. Mm-hmm. And of course they were more than happy to let us go sit in those towers. But the guy frankly said, Hey, look, man, it's my career on that line. Those are privates and specialists that are mechanics and pack clerks and, this kind of per, this kind of soldier and that kind of soldier and they, I can't afford to let them fire on the public because if they hit somebody they're not supposed to, 
It's my ass on the line. That's exactly what he said. Wow. That's exactly what he said. You know, it was also in 06. And there were plenty of, because we went off every uh, camp, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and the amount of times that they would be trying to tell our gunners, you get down. They would try to stop us from leaving the installation because our gunners were up in the turret, right? Because at this time, the conventional forces, that thing was just sitting up there like this, which is the dumbest thing you could ever do. Yep. That's your suppression weapon. That's the, hey, I get it. There's snipers out there. Then go take care of the snipers. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. But that's not how things were being run. It just wasn't. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was over there in 0607 and we had built like the little tops, the little Hesco tops for our freaking yep. uh, turrets, right? Yep. So we could at least come up a little bit. Yep. But I mean, you're but, right, but though. They we wouldn't let you. We weren't allowed to be outside of that Dude, death lane. And that command turret. people and guards at the gates, they would try to get on you. The, the good thing oh, is yeah. we have a team sergeant that's an E8. So there was never, ever, ever a uh, sergeant of the guards that outranked him. Right. They were always at the most an E7. And generally, it's an E6 of out there. Yeah, E5s and E6s. That's, are that's out generally there the who's show, out yeah. running them gates. But, but their command... Would, and this is how they treated everybody. You could not leave their gate if you didn't get down in the turret. Now, we didn't listen. Right. And, and Pitt was one of the guys. He was in the turret. So he would just tell them straight up, look, I'm sorry, but, dude, we don't have to listen to you. And this is not is not how we conduct business. Yeah. And we're going to be up in these turrets because it's important. Mm -hmm. And so, or we would just blow by them and not even listen. You know? Right. But either way, we weren't getting down. Yeah. And so... Um, you know, uh, so, so I, you know, the good thing was, man, um, I got to serve with a, a good group of guys during that Tim and I did learn a lot, you know, it was unfortunate the way it turned out, you know? So as we get further in the deployment and literally when I got wounded, we were either on day 119 or day 120. Mm -hmm. And 120 would be exactly halfway through the rotation. Oh, wow. And so what happened was 4th ID and I believe 1st Cav had just switched out, mm -hmm. right? And 4th ID had been there a year or a year and a half even, right? So when we would go to there, when it was their sector that we went in and needed to do some work, you know, we'd go in, oh, yeah, we know exactly who you're talking about. We know right where they live. That's how good it was. You know what I mean? So then we uh, we were able to pull off missions. Plus, at this point, they knew going in with blacked out, trying to sneak in, ain't going to do you any good. Mm -hmm. Then first Cavrol's in. That guy wants to do this. We we missed a high-value target by two minutes. Mm. And literally, it took us 10 years to catch up to that guy and kill him. Wow. 10 years. And I think of the destruction that guy took on his own people. It wasn't just Americans he was killing. It was plenty of Iraqis and anybody else. Yeah. You know, it was really no telling what amount of damage that guy did in that amount of 10 years. But nonetheless, we got him. Yeah. And, you know, uh, so, um, you know, I, I couldn't have been happier with the way things played out with the exception of that. Uh, so day 119 or 120 comes up. And we are we are forty eight hours from doing a, a huge hit, yeah. right? And we got twenty one bad guys on the tip, and the tip is the the entire plan, right? Yeah. And so as an ODA, that's what you do, right? 
we not only go out and collect our own intelligence, but then all the other intelligence has been collected in the theater. We put all that together, the stuff that matches up with the individuals that we're looking at, right? Yeah. And then we write the entire plan. Nice. You know, we write what's going to happen, the movement, the combo plan, the medical plan, you name it. It's the entire ball of wax. Nice. And then you send that up. Yeah. Right? It goes through the B team up to the battalion and then up to whoever's over the siege of soda at that time. Yeah. And that commander then neither blesses off or doesn't. But this time, most of them did get blessed off on, right? Mm-hmm. And certainly, like even this high value target had, since Pitt was in the SIF team, he knew how to word stuff, right? Because if we'd have put who that was and the high value target was and we sent that tip up, CAG would have snatched it right off the top. Yeah. You know what I mean? And we would have never got to action that that piece. Yeah. So we were careful about that, right? Because mm-hmm. we didn't want to give away the parts that we wanted to do ourselves for sure. Yeah. You, you don't want to, I mean, because like for the listeners that might not understand like the nuances of that, you've put so much time in developing a target package and putting in the work you because we had to do the same thing with part of uh seal team four in 2010 in afghanistan right i think i was talking about this with you yesterday yeah i i had helped develop this whole package and then they send in a cia team then half a team four comes in and you're kind of like come on man like we're the ones that have put in all the legwork on this it's it's the life story of a green bray and an oda right there's a lot of things you send up that you're never going to get to action for that simple reason right there yeah um, but you still, it still has to get done, right? And so most of these packages, doesn't matter who's actioning them now, right? Put together by an ODA somewhere in right. the world. And so uh, we uh, we have twenty one bad guys on this tip, and you know uh, it was at Baghdad Jadida is the Mahalia that it's in, and Baghdad Jadida is right next to Sadr City, which every common American seen on the news now, yeah. where Sadr City is in Baghdad. Right next to it, its little sister is Baghdad Jadida, which means New Baghdad or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. However, it's a pretty big part. The part we were looking at was really only about twelve streets wide, seven st- or you know twelve streets long, seven streets wide. But the conventional forces had fenced it all the way in mm. because they had put out so many IEDs and EFPs on the road. Yeah, I mean like ridiculous amounts. Wow! So fenced them in. We're gonna go in. And, and since we lost that last guy by two minutes because they drove around the block, you know, they missed the turn and they drove around the block of his house. So really we went around it once and then back to it. And that's the two minutes mm. that cost us of missing this guy. So we realized at this point, if we're going to work in that area, we're going to have to go in and do a little recon ourselves beforehand. Yeah. So that's exactly what we were doing. We were just going in, uh, you know, a little after dark, a small signature. We had three vehicles, just our team specific. And we were going through solely to make sure that we knew all the roads. Mm-hmm. We were going to be able to have a clean route in and out and, and not the same one. You know right. what I mean? Because at this time in Iraq, if you went into a bad guy's house and you tried to come back out the same way, they would set out IEDs in the road and blow you up. Yep. And they were hoping you would come back. So it was, you know, um, detrimental that you never did that. Yeah, definitely. And so we were heading in and we literally got to the hole in the fence, which was probably our biggest mistake, right? Because mm-hmm. everybody knew that's that was the access point. Yep. And so that's where they had the ambush set up. Yep. 
And, you know, we pull in, I radio in, let the B team know we're in the neighborhood. And now we're going to go through and systematically make sure we know where everything is. Right. And instantly, I look to my left and there's a road that they've built a roadblock. This isn't American made. This is Iraqi made. And yeah. it's bad guy made. And so it's not on our records. It's not on the map. So I'm riding right on that road on my map in my hand exactly where that roadblock is. Mm -hmm. And that's when it happened. You know, I didn't hear it. The Humvee rocked. Mm -hmm. But as you all well know, you're, we're driving around in crap and holes. At that, it, that happens all the time, even if there isn't an explosion. Yep. And so, but my map was gone. The pen was gone. I had some clear glasses on since it was at night. They were gone. And I was sitting there wondering what just happened. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, I hear them saying IED drill. I hear my team now calling that out. And literally, I thought to myself, are they talking about us? Was that, what just happened? You know I mean? I wasn't really sure. Because of that force, it was, as it turned out, it was an EFP. Mm -hmm. It's a shape charge. Yep. And, uh, it ripped through the vehicle at lightning speed. I didn't even know the thing hit me. It happened so fast. You know, but it took off half my butt, and then it went through the fuel tank. Wow. I'm listening to them call IED drills, and I'm, like, figuring it out. What, what just happened? And then the next thing I know, I breathe in something horrible, and the flames of my legs was like lighting a match. Oh, wow. I went from not being on fire to fully involved in a split second. Wow. And, you know... Uh, at first I tried to put them out, even though I know better from my ambulance time, you can't put yourself out certainly when it's fuel, yeah. but with the adrenaline, I had no choice. Right. I questioned myself. Why am I doing this in my head? But I was trying to put myself out. Then I had to get out and roll. You know what I mean? It took some time. Uh, but I got to the cash within 45 minutes after that of it actually happening. And, you know, so I, I think all that led to helping, you know, um, as they said, even a few years back and certainly Vietnam time, I would not have survived my injuries on the battlefield. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, and you know, I, I, uh, not only was I missing my entire rear, um, both my legs were burned from the knees to the ankle, completely burned up. Mm. And, you know, as it turns out, they had to do fasciotomies on both sides of both legs or I would have lost them both right there. Wow. Yep. And so I get to the cash. I'm still conscious, you know, but they, they put me under and I, it's five days later. I wake up in San Antonio, Texas in the burn unit. Holy shit. And that's where all my rehab time, you know, I, I, I didn't really feel anything when it happened. Yeah. Uh, one, I was in shock and two, I was mad. Yeah. You know, one anger is a way that you learn to get over pain. Certainly. As a man. Certainly. And certainly even in sport, high school sport, but certainly in the military. And so I was mad, but I was also mad because I knew that, you know, I wasn't finishing the mission. Yeah. I wasn't staying with my team and I hadn't thought it all the way through to, you know, this is the end of my career. Right. That hadn't occurred to me yet, but it was bad enough what I was thinking at that moment. Sure. You know what I mean, and, uh, and then to go through and have to learn how to walk again, you know what I mean? Cause I had such nerve damage. I couldn't walk, you know, uh, I think I was in the hospital for almost a month and a half, a month and a week. I was in the burn ICU and then another week in a regular wing. And then they let me out, mm -hmm. but I'd lost 65 pounds. 
Damn. How many, you, you'd probably had a, a tremendous amount of surgeries at this point too, as well, right? Yeah. I don't even know how many, I mean, they had to do the grafts, they had to fix my butt. And initially the butt part was, since there's such a huge chunk missing, you can't just pull that together and stitch it up. Right. It don't work. So they had to, first they had to put a wound back on it and a big one, you know, it was a huge thing. And every three days I'd go into surgery so they could take that thing off and put a new one on. Wow. And uh, yeah. And that went on for a while until it basically looked like hamburger meat, which is healthy looking, right? There's blood in it. And then that's when you have the best chance of success for that type of surgery. And they had to do a lower muscle and skin flap. So they had to cut things and move it over so they could pull it all together and then sew it together. Gotcha. And so I was on my stomach for a long time during that whole thing, too. Oh, cow. Yeah. And, uh... It was a rough time. I'm not going to lie, man. You know, I, as again, I didn't feel any pain when it happened, even with the fire, mm-hmm. because of anger and because of shock. But when I woke up, oh, man, that's when all the pain started. And then it didn't matter how much pain medication they gave me. I was still in significant pain. Wow. So they just maxed me out on everything. Mm. And as uh, I told you last night, then that became the worst thing that happened to me. Yep. You know, I woke up with a colostomy because I'm missing a butt. Six and that's bad enough. Sure, colostomy bag. It really is. It's a it's a rough time for you, especially getting used to it. it you know, waking up, seeing it there. Then you got to get used to this thing. Uh, luckily for me, six months later, I had a reversal, and the reversal is extremely hard. Mm. No one tells you this, right? Yeah. And since I'd had a a, a bag with my poop and on my stomach for six months. I was singing and dancing when I came into the hospital to get that reversal. Right. Yeah. And I was being a little cocky, you know, and the guy that's taking all my paperwork and doing me as I'm coming in, he goes, well, we'll see how you feel tomorrow. That's, that was my first indication that things might be a little different than I'm expecting. Yeah. But basically split you, you know what I mean? Uh, and your midsection wide open to put things together. So literally when I woke up the next day, you know, Oh, man, the amount of pain and discomfort I'm in, you know, from having been split open in the middle from, you know, right about, uh, I don't know, four inches above my belly button all Mm. the way down to my crotch. Mm. You know, uh, I could tell they had cut me. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can't you know, they don't want you to. There's not a whole lot you can do at that point. Um, And my worst part was I couldn't even choke up the phlegm. That was in my throat and the stuff just from surgery. So then it would activate my gag reflex. And I'm trying to gag with this cut stomach and oh man, so brutal, you know, and then they won't let you have anything, not even water by mouth until you pass gas. Cause then that proves that it's hooked back up. Everything's right. Yeah. You pass gas then you're good to go. Right. Huh. For me, that was post-op day 10. Oh, shit. The longest 10 days of my life. The, the first three days, like I said, was so painful. I didn't move. I didn't talk. I didn't turn the TV on. Yeah. My wife, my ex-wife sat in the room with me in the dark. You know, and by day three, she was asking, hey, are you okay? <laughs> what's, what's going on here? Yeah. <clears throat> but man, you know, it was completely jacked up. The funny part of that is then when you get back out of the hospital and you get a month or two down the road, you you start going to the bathroom again normally it's as thin as spaghetti string and it'll take you 30 minutes to go to the bathroom to get all that out wow 
And then another thing they don't tell you is it's been six months, so you're not used to having to hold it when all of a sudden you need to go and it's not the right time. And so me and my kids are driving in the, uh, the truck and we're cruising along. Uh, we're coming up. Uh, I can't remember the road that is. Um, so you have 24 out here, right? And then 41 Alpha goes past all the gates. Yep. And there was that other road that went all the way to Wilma Rudolph, but from 41 Alpha. And then it went out past, and it kept going out into the countryside. 31? 31? Yeah, I think that is what it is. Yep. And so I was headed out there because before I left, I get the group, right? The first day I show up, there's a sign in the hall that says, we're selling cigs for 600 bucks, you know, and they're laser engraving it with fifth group. The serial number is coming with fifth group label on it. And so, of course, I sign up for one. It says it's a 30-day or two-month turnaround tops. Mm-hmm. Four months later, the thing still hasn't come in, right? And I deploy. Two weeks after I left, the guy contacts and says, you know, my wife had my phone, and she lets me know, well, they, they, they came in. I'm like, great. So fast forward, now I'm in Bamsey. I'm out of the hospital. We're actually, I'm still in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're, at the, uh, we're at the commissary buying groceries. Then we're going to go back to the apartment. And Ed Lowry is the guy. He was the old warrant officer, I believe, out of fifth group. And he has his own little shooting range and shooting school out outside of Clarksville. Mm-hmm. And that's where we went, right? Yeah. So I went there to get my pistol now. I already paid for and Now it's been a year and a half. You know what I mean? Because I, I was in San Antonio for eight months. Yeah. And I was deployed for four. So there's 12 plus the four months I waited for it to come in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he calls me when we're in the commissary and I'm like, he goes, man, I just, you know, this thing's been here a long time. Do you still want this? You know what I mean? I'm like, yes, I absolutely want. So then I tell him what happened. Yeah. He's like, oh, that was you. Yeah. Yeah. That was me. And, you know, uh, and so then he says, well, you know, I've got some AR platforms too. Did, uh, do you want one of those? And he sells it to me for 600 bucks. Wow. And. The 25 I already paid to have the background check, he just used that. Nice. So then I, I go out and pick these up from him, right? Mm-hmm. And now we're on our way back, which is, you know, he was 30 or 40 minutes from our house and out in the middle of nowhere. So when we come back and we get to about where 41 Alpha and 31 Cross again, there's a store there. Well, right before I get to that, all of a sudden I've got to go to the bathroom. And this is the first time that I've been somewhere that now there's not a toilet, right? Right. And I'm like... Oh, and I can't hold it. Oh, snap. I'm like, and now I'm like, oh, ah, oh, ah. I'm making noises like that. You know, and the kids are like, dad, dad, what's wrong? What's the matter? I'm like, I got to go to the bathroom. Dude, I, I have to drive. You know, there's a median in the yeah. middle of that road. Yeah. Uh, right over the median. <laughs> over the curve. Next curve on the other side of the road. <laughs> Slide and stop into the parking lot in front of the door. I come running out, and now I'm gra- I've got my you know my butt in my hand. I'm trying to squeeze everything together with my hand and my butt, and I come running and go bathroom, bathroom, bathroom is all I could say. Got <laughs> <laughs> points, and I run over to the bathroom and uh, go to the bathroom, man. But I was like, holy smoke! Oh man! And uh, so that's a funny little story about yeah. that, you know. But it really was uncomfortable, man, and. I'm glad that I don't still have one, you know what I mean? But yep. the reversal was up until I had to get off the pain medication, mm-hmm. even with the pain from the burns, all that was bad. There's no, 
if ands or buts about that. But the reversal was tough. It was real tough. You Mm. know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, but you know, and at that time, it was the toughest thing that I went through. Wow. Till I came off the pain medication. Yeah. With struggle with that. How much do you think your previous experience with addiction played into getting off pain meds again? So I think that it really, you know, uh, my whole life I'd questioned why that happened, you know what I mean? And why that had to happen. And, you know, although I know those were my choices and decisions, now I came out of it, but the reality is you still look back and wonder why you did that. Yep. Why that had to happen. Why you couldn't have been smarter. Why things just would, hadn't have fallen differently. Yep. Um, but after the pain medication thing, I knew exactly why. You know what I mean? It was a, so that's when I actually looked back at the first time, really looked back at my life and said, things match up. You know, early on, I had that drug addiction that was very difficult to get over where many, many Americans never do. And in right. fact, many of the guys, people I was doing it with then, you know, if they're not dead or in prison now, they're still doing it. Yep. And we're talking 20 years later. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? And now we're all adults with kids and in bass. Some of us have grandkids. Yep. And I, so I, I think, you know, uh, when it came time that I needed to get off the pain medication, I, I knew how to do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I knew how to do it. Plus, I still had the reasons to do it, right? I still had my wife, my kids. I needed to go back to work. Yeah. And taking that amount of medication, you're not going to be productive at work. Oh, no. I mean, you're a zombie. Yeah. You're an absolute zombie. I should have been drooling on myself. Oh, yeah, definitely. And so it definitely, you know, it's just like I look back at all the destruction and devastation I saw in an ambulance. Yeah. You know what I mean? Then come to play, we go to Iraq during that initial invasion. You know what I mean? And some dudes came back perfectly fine, mm-hmm. like myself. You know what I mean? But, but you're forever changed. There's no Definitely. doubt about that. Definitely. Um, but then, uh, you know, I had some other friends, like one of my uh, wife's friends that she was good friends with, right? He wasn't an infantry guy. I was a, a, an engineer, right? Mm-hmm. And we came back and he seemed normal in the beginning too, also, right? Right. But it was the first case of real PTSD that I ever saw mm. because it wasn't within a month or two. She called us, right, and said she was really scared and really worried and something is wrong. So we get on the phone, she comes over, we talk to her, okay, well, so, you know, I'm kind of half sure, whatever. It's not really that bad. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's nothing to be worried about. But she comes over and says, no, 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 no. She says, he doesn't go anywhere. And now when I come home at night, he's sitting at home alone in the dark with nothing on, just sitting there. And it I've scares been there. me. I've been there. And I'm like, whoa, okay, now this is bad. Yeah. This is real bad. You know, so you don't really know how things are going to affect any different person. You don't. You, know you, can, I mean? you can't predict it. No. And so I think some of that helped. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Although... You know, there were times that I got to, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure there were guys that did more or had more, Kate, you know, I don't know, maybe there were more gunfights, but, you know, I saw enough for sure. Yeah, I mean. I, mean, I saw enough for sure. Definitely. You know what I mean? And so at the end of the day, you know, uh, I, I compare the two only that, you know, being a group was more professional 
and it was definitely more surgical. Mm-hmm. Right? Where in the infantry in the beginning, it was just mowing across the land and and whatever. Right. You know, where here we we're like picking and choosing targets, and you know, uh, so it was completely different. You know, I, I can't really complain about my experience in the military for one because certainly where I ended up, I survived it. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I came home to my kids, which yep. is the most important thing. And I think about, no, certainly. you know, now looking back as hard as it was to let go of my dream of being already becoming a green beret. And I'm going to go on to CAG. Yeah. I'm going to go make that attempt. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then just to, in the beginning, it seemed like it was just so unfair that it was just snatched right out from under me. Right. Yeah. That's how initially I looked at it. Sure. But as time has evolved, and certainly with the amount of blessings that I've received from because of my injuries alone. Yep. You know what I mean? Because another guy does the same service as me, but don't injured. He didn't get those blessings. Right. Did the same thing. He just wasn't unlucky enough to get jacked up. Yep. Physically. Yeah, that's why it always put me in a weird space to take anything. Yeah. Right? Because it always made me feel weird. Like, I don't want anything. Well, it's not just that. The blessings I also mean, like, you know, I look at the relationship I have with my kids now. Okay. I mean, you think of 2012. We're all... Well, I'm sorry. 2006. So we are... What, 15 years? Pretty close, huh? Mm-hmm. I think about all the milestones, you know, the things that have gone on in my kid's life that had I died on that day, I would have missed. Oh, certainly. You know, the grad, both of them graduated yep. high school. My daughter graduated college. You know, now my son's making his way through mechanic school and going on to BMW step program to be one of their mechanics. Nice. You know, and uh, even their birthdays, you know what I mean? A holiday, I would have missed every bit of that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And like, I see some of the guys and certainly Pitt, the guy I talked about who was killed a couple of years after I was injured. You know, uh, recently I saw on Facebook, one of his daughters who's now married is pregnant. Nice. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I I get chill bumps thinking about it now because, you know, he's not here, man. Yeah. He's not here. He's not going to get to be there for this. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, and, and all the others that ended up like that. So I, I can't complain because that very well could have been me. No questions. And, and so I was fortunate enough that I see it as the hand of God. Yeah. You know what I mean? Who knows? One mile an hour faster or slower, maybe the trajectory, one more pebble, one pebble less. Yeah. Who really knows what changes that situation? And it cuts me in half. Right. Instead of, ta- instead of grazing me. Yeah. You know what I mean? And Certainly. it changes the entire outcome. I die yep. right there on that street in Iraq instead of, you know, going on, then going on to help lead others. You know, I mean, now that I've not, I would say close to full circle, you know what I mean? Because, Again, looking back at all the blessings that come in my life, the biggest being the relationship I have with both my kids. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where pre-injury, I wasn't even home. Right. And had I not got injured, that would have continued. Correct. Yeah. You know, at a minimum of nine months a year that I wouldn't be home every single year. No question. And so, heck, who knows, you know, in another 10 years of that, what 
my relationship with them would look like. No question. It I, certainly wouldn't be as deep yep. and as good as it is now. Yep. And so when you put it in that perspective, any little prideful thing that I lost of still being a Green Beret, going to CAG, just fades away. Sure. Because it's really what matters. And you've been able, because of what you've been through, to put all of it in its right place, right? In its right perspective and really see what's important. Um, And that's being there for our kids, man. Being the example that they deserve, right? Not the one that they need, but the one that they deserve. You know, being the hard example when we need to be the hard example, because we can be as hard as anybody, right? Yep. But also seeing their struggle and having a little bit of compassion, right? Well, you have to show them the loving side too. Yep. Yep. It's it's the same. You can't be imbalanced of too much of either, but the reality is you can't always be the tough guy. Well, they're not team guys. That's right. You know? That's right. And, and they're not privates. And I had to, I had to, <laughs> and that took me a long time after I got hurt, like even dealing with my wife. It's like, hold on, she's not in my platoon, yep. right? Yep. I got to chill out the way that I talk to my wife, yep. the way I talk to my kids. And it took me a long time, man. But it really took me taking all my garbage and putting it in the right place and understanding why I was angry and understanding why I get depressed sometimes and what that's linked to. But it took me working all that stuff out with myself to be able to take a step back and go, oh, I do that for the, uh, you know, I, I, I'm projecting, I'm projecting on them. Yeah. You have to go on that journey. You do. You have to live life. You have to go on that journey. And it is, as we spoke about last night, it's like the five stages of grief. That isn't just for losing someone. Right. When you, when you end up this way, it's kind of the same thing, but it's for yourself. You lost a part of yourself. You're never getting back. It died and it's gone. Yeah. And so, you know, at some point, you're going to deny that that even happened. At some point, then you're going to get really mad about it, right? Yeah. And then that's going to lead to what? You're, then you're going to end up being sad about it. Yeah. And eventually, as that journey keeps going and you filter all the way through those things and you, you know, you logically look at it reasonably and then what comes? Acceptance. Acceptance. Yep. And that's where you have to get. And no until doubt. you can accept where you are and what happened and what's going to be, you know, you're, you're, you're going to struggle more. There's just no way around that. You've got to be willing to hold yourself accountable oh, before sure. you're, before you can accept Absolutely. it though. Because there's a lot of people that get, get caught up in the healing cycle somewhere between being mad and sad, not ready to accept it because some of them bounce around too much to organizations or events to where they're constantly getting told they're special. You know what I'm saying? Because of like what they went through and they make that their lifestyle. Right. Well, you know, I call those professional wounded warriors. Yeah. Right? And, yep. and I, I agree with you on that fact because I think that, uh, there's a fear from someone like that, that it, once they accept it and then they're it, just because you accepted something, right doesn't mean all of a sudden you're healed and you don't qualify. Right. You know, I think they think that they're going to get less, but it's, it's just a matter of them using their situation as a victim in some way, form or fashion 
to gain something either financially or property wise yep. or yeah because they don't want to work for it is really what it boils down to yep. they're just kind of done working and they're kind of done with life and yep. they just want somebody to take care of them yep. they're like hey look at me but like i i've always been at the opposite end of that spectrum and i don't want anything from anybody especially for what for my service or for getting hurt. Like, I don't want, I don't feel like I deserve something for that. You know what I'm saying? Oh no, I absolutely know what you're talking about. Um, but what we should take away from our experiences, right. Is what it took to get us there. Yeah. And the values that were instilled in us when we were there and the feelings of ultimate camaraderie and ultimate teamwork an ultimate family, right? Because that's one thing that is really hard to deal with once you get out is missing all that stuff. Yeah, it doesn't exist in the civilian world. It doesn't. It doesn't. Because you go from, man, willing to lay your life down for the guy next to you. You might not like him. That's right. You might not piss on him, piss on him when he's on fire when you're off work. But when you're on work, you're going to take a bullet for that dude. Yeah. That does not exist in the civilian world. They will stab you in the back and let you burn. Oh no, that's you know that's the theme of the day. Definitely, you know I mean? and it's it's definitely the opposite. And for me, I was the same way. You know, I went through the Care Coalition, the Green Brave Foundation, and got everything. Uh, you know, for eight years, everything offered to me that you could uh, ever think of, mm -hmm. uh, and never took most of it. You know, I got a bike, went on some. Now I did go on fishing trips or I do some golf tournaments. You yep. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, just in proximity was so calm that I went and raided all these nonprofits. Of course they were willing to give me anything they had, yeah. you know, homes, dogs included. And, you know, as it turns out, I didn't take any of them. And even when building homes for heroes came along and I got my home, right. Yeah. It was very hard for me to accept. Right. One, it was hard for me to put into, you know, grasp my mind around that somebody's going to give you a mortgage free home. Yeah. That's such a large gift. That's not a skiing trip, right? It's not a fishing trip. That's a huge, yeah, huge. Yeah. And then you think there's no way I deserve it. There's no way I'm really worthy of somebody just giving me a home because not everybody's going to get one. Yeah. You know, and then you, then I went through another part, right? As I'm getting over that, then I start thinking, well, so now is my service paid for? Yeah. So I went. I've never looked at it from that perspective. So yeah. I went and I did this for a greater cause and to serve my nation you know what I mean? And now I'm taking property for what I did. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is that right? You know what I mean? Now is my, the service I went and did, is that bought and paid for? You know what I mean? Yeah. Through that. Did I just give a piece of myself away? So I'm not, I really haven't, I think, fully thought that through. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it was something that I had to get over. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I thought, you know, of course, everybody tells you, oh, you most certainly deserve it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but when it's you and you're thinking about yourself and you're certainly like you or me, I mean, plenty, there, believe me, you mean both know plenty, know plenty of people. It wouldn't bother one bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, no yeah, question. They, they would, and man, like I've got zero issue with amputees, guys that have been severely freaking hurt getting a house built for them. Right, because you and I both know how much that actually improves your quality of freaking life oh, and how much it opens up possibilities for the rest of your life because you don't, because it cuts down 
on the time it takes to do shit. Right. And so I've got no largest expense. No question. Rent or mortgage. That's your biggest expense. Always. And and then having a mortgage free home really did bring a level of peace Mm -hmm. that I've never experienced before. Oh, I'm sure. You know what I mean? And even after I had the TSGLI, you know, and I got uh, in two different parts about a year apart, but I got the whole hundred grand. Yep. You know, and for the longest time, we still had 50 grand in the bank. Nice. That brings a level of peace. Definitely. You know what I mean? That you're like, man, so I can, it, you know, you didn't worry about anything. But the reality is it didn't bring the same level of peace as a mortgage-free home does. Yeah. So it surpassed that. You know what I mean? And of course you end up spending that. And then we went through a divorce and, you know, we bought a house first and then a divorce. So, you know, um, that was that. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of how that goes. And really I spent the last bit of it uh, that I had in savings after the divorce, staying in the house we bought in Tampa now by myself on one income. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was was a heavy toll. And so uh, to come, you know, and I moved back to Dallas, uh, but, you know, um, I, I guess, you know, now that I've been in the home for four years, um, I just couldn't be more grateful and thankful, which you already are in the beginning. Yep. But it's, again, it's so long. It takes you a long time for that to really absorb in of what that really means. Oh, I'm sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so uh, now, you know, I, they still reach out to me every now and then when they have, and it, it's nice to be able to, not everybody I've recommended has gotten a home. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. But uh, a couple have. Nice. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's, you, you know, to be able to pass that on to somebody else, you know, it's. That's pretty rad. Yeah. That's pretty rad. And like, I've got no issue with people that go to events, get houses, stuff like that. As long as you pay it forward. Yeah. Right. As long as you do everything you can to like pull somebody along with yep. you. Right. Absolutely. Or pull a couple dudes along with yep. you. Um that's that's where it all becomes okay with me as long as you're trying to like get everybody else involved too you know what i'm saying yep. and try to get one for everybody um which leads leads me to the atf right yeah i'm training yep. at the atf uh, training other athletes during their classes so which, explain what the atf is so the atf is called the adaptive training foundation and uh, it was started by david vibora who's an ex-nfl player who was a linebacker for the rams um, end up hurting his shoulder, which I think he did about five years in the league, but he hurt his shoulder, so that kind of ended his career. Mm-hmm. And he found himself in the same spot, I guess, as a lot of injured, you know, uh, veterans do. Right. Um, I started a gym initially in Dallas to train other professional athletes, and so he goes up to a convenience store at some point, and there's a veteran I think missing either three or all four appendages. Right. Was it Travis Mills? Yeah. Is that who it was? Yep. And so he's trying to get up into the 7-Eleven and he can't, you know. And and at this point in his life, this guy was at his lowest of lows. He was ready to kill himself and be done with it, right? Life was not fun. Nothing was easy for him. Uh, He was all alone, Mm. you know, and on drugs and just you name it. He was literally ready. And that's what he tells him in the parking lot. You know, life sucks. It ain't never getting better for me. And so I might as well just end it now. Wow. And so he talks him into coming to the gym the next day, right? Mm-hmm. Come train with us. We don't know how we'll do it, 
because of your disabilities, but we'll figure it out. And so they did. And Larry Travis Mills starts coming and working out with them, right? Mm-hmm. He had one other girl there. And so they start doing the working out. And I mean, look where Travis Mills is today. The guy's married, yeah. has his own nonprofit. He's a speaker, uh, night and day difference. Yep. And that's where it all started for the Adaptive Training Foundation. Uh, so come along uh, three or four years later in class 12 was my first class. So nice. I, I, now me and the GBF, uh, the Green Bay Foundation had separated and I was unemployed I was a little overweight. I'd gotten kind of lazy, you know what I mean? And I was kind of feeling sorry for myself. Yeah. You know, I'm looking, I was uh, 49 at the time, and I'm thinking, man, first of all, you have to look back. I look back, you know, I was a Green Beret at one point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, I'm not even in the Army anymore. I've, I've lost weight. I don't have a job. You know, I don't have a degree, so I have no education. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking the best years of my life now are behind me. I bet. I'm literally, that's, it was a scary thought. Yeah. It really did cross my mind. And it took me six months to a year to process and get through that and to really, you know, accept that. So then I applied for a class. I got in, I go to class 12, you know, and it's a nine week trainings. So their, their flagship program is called Redefine. Okay. And so you, you show up right on day one orientation and now you're going to come in three days a week for a couple hours and we're going to train you like a professional athlete. You're going to have a head trainer and at least one other trainer with you, depending on your disability. If people with spinal cord injuries will have two extra trainers with them, right? With the head trainer. Help with assists. And yep. yep. And to move and, and everything that goes down. And so how it works is, like they'll usually have about 10 people per class. Every single person will have a different disability. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's not picked out where you can't, there'll be multiple amputees, but they just won't be the same generally. Right. But that doesn't matter. You could have two below the knees that there's no specific point. There's, I guess what I'm trying to say. Right. But generally everybody has a different disability and certainly everybody has different goals. And so that's what we look at. Right. And then we write their program out to according to what their goals and disabilities are. Yep. And we're not a disability gym. So you're not going to come in and see all this equipment that's made for adaptive equipment. It just doesn't exist. Yeah. Right. Now we, uh, we are like a traditional gym, but more like a professional sports gym because you have an open area. We have tanks that you push back and forth. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, we do have machines. We do have free weights and you have every type of level of, of skill and condition training. Mm -hmm. And so then we will train them for those nine weeks to attain whatever goals or whatever they want to do. Maybe there's something they haven't done since they were disabled that they used to do. Yeah. Or it could be something they've never done. Yeah. Um, and, and then we help them reach that again. We're not, there's not a bunch of adaptive equipment. So we'll come in there and we figured out now, We've learned, you know, we know what to do with spinal cord injury patients and amputee. So we, again, you don't need adaptive equipment. You just need to do it a little differently sometimes. You just got to use your imagination. Yeah. And, uh, and one of the things is, is when you walk in this gym, we are not going to feel sorry for you. Yeah. Awesome. Where generally all, any kind of disability person that goes anywhere, even to their physical therapy, those people actually feel sorry for them. Right. Yeah. So worst thing you could do yeah the worst thing so we don't feel sorry for them right and then we're not going to do it for you either yeah 
You can't. We're, we're going to be here right here with you, doing it with you and, and helping you get through this, but we're not doing it for you. Yep. You will do it yourself. And that's even, we had a guy a few year, uh, couple years ago. Um, I don't remember if he's a, a stroke or spinal cord injury patient, but he can still walk somewhat, right? Mm-hmm. But not very good. And he walked everywhere with a walker. This guy was ter- terrified of falling. Mm-hmm. I mean, terrified, understandably. Yeah. You know what I mean? So one of the things this trainer did was every day that guy came in, we set up all these pads and they made him fall over and over and over. That's pretty rad. Now he had to get himself up too. And so literally when we first started, I think it took him four or five minutes to get up from the ground. Oh, wow. No kidding. Wow. No kidding. From his coordination, his strength, all of it together, you know, that's where he was. Wow. And by the end, he could get up in a minute, minute and a half. Nice. And he was no longer afraid of falling. They literally made him fall so many times on these pads that he got over the fear of falling. And then he also strengthened himself, which is really what it all comes down to. Yep. He was afraid because he's too weak to get up. Yeah. Not only are you going to hurt yourself when you fall, but then you're not able to get up. Yeah. And if no one's there to help you, you can't get up. I mean, that, that would be, that would be scary. Yeah, no doubt. And so, you know, that's just one example. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, but that's that's what we do there. And so awesome. once I came there, you know, it's also the, the philosophy of the ATF is we're here to prove that it doesn't matter what happens to you. It's the old saying. It's how you react to it. Yep. How you bounce back or not that matters. No question. And it doesn't matter what happens to you. Whatever you want to do, you can do. Mm-hmm. Now, if you can't walk anymore, obviously you're not going to walk. But you know, I mean, within reason. Yep. What do you want to go do? What do you want to involve yourself in life now, so you have some sort of quality of life and you can have fun? Yep. You know, and so, uh, and that's we just fine tune that fitness the whole way that nine weeks. Now we also have auxiliary events throughout the week because some of these people come into town and they're in a hotel for nine weeks. Yep. You know what I mean? So if you just came in three days a week, those people would go stir crazy. And they did. So we have, they'll get to go do equestrian. They'll get to go rock climbing. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so there are other events and there's even a shooting event that they set up that is a lot of fun. Nice. It's not just sitting there shooting a target. They get to go do moving. Oh, nice. They get to not, not really fly, but they're out of the door of a helicopter. You know what I mean? So that's good fun. Yeah. Right yeah. There. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, so there's a lot involved in that, right? Yeah. And and uh, the other piece that we do is the mental aspect of it, right? Gotcha. Yep. Mindfulness. Yep. Meditating. So important. So we have a specialist. This guy's, you know, made his life goal of learning and doing all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And is fully taking it in. So they'll go in before the class for 10 or 15 minutes, you know, and do some breathing techniques. First, he'll talk to him a little bit. And then he do some breathing techniques a little bit of meditation. Yep. And then he gives them the mindfulness of there's kind of an objective or, you know, you'll come up with a saying for that day. Right. Things get tough. You got to give a little saying to get yourself going or whatever it is. There'll be a different mental point each week, right? Nice. In each exercise. And then they'll go in for another 10 or 15 minutes after the workout and do it again. Right. That's come pretty right. Yeah. Nice. And so then he's, and, and the whole time he's talking to you about your breathing 
when you get upset, whether you're in traffic or you're out there on the gym floor and things are getting tough. It's so important, man. I mean, me and you were talking about it. Uh, I believe it was yesterday or this morning, just talking about like, if you watch a baby breathe, yeah. you see the belly going up and yeah. down. Right. Yeah. And that's how we're supposed to breathe. That's how we're built to breathe. But once you start engaging that chest breathing, yeah. now fight or flight's kicking in. Cause that's the only time you're supposed to breathe like that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so like learning to control your breathing and your breath is huge. Oh, it for, is a big deal. Oh yeah. It's everything. In fact, no doubt. And it's the one thing, just like the, what meditation teaches really. It's the one thing that's always with you from the time you are born to the time you die mm -hmm. will be your breath. Yep. And I think it's also kind of interesting how we've kind of forgotten how to live as yep. humans, yep. right? Because we've forgotten how to breathe. Yep. We've gotten such a fast rat race pace. Well, I, mean? I think it has to do with it, right? Because... Yep everybody's a chest breather now. Right. So everybody's always in fight or flight and got to go, 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 go. You know what I'm saying? Nobody's belly breathing except okay. for it's like a, a few hurt. people. Right. Yep. Exactly. Yep. So it's, you know, that's what we do at the adaptive training foundation. And once I got there, you know, and then I show up just like a lot of people do. And now the words kind of gotten out. So maybe that's shifted a little bit because a lot of times now in the last couple of classes, people were coming in for them. I need to get my head right. Gotcha. Right? Yeah. When I showed up in class 12, I was like most people at that point, man, we're coming in, we're going to get in shape, going to lose a few pounds. This is going to be good. Yeah. Right. You yep. know, the mindfulness part didn't even, didn't even register until I got there. And then, you know, just going through the whole process with their philosophy. And then really we're just trying to make better humans through the process. Right. And that yep. turns out to be for everyone involved, not just Certainly. the athlete. Because when you go in there and train some of these people and then you, you know, if you see somebody that stood up or take some steps for the first time in 13 years, you know what I mean? You oh, yeah. can't express how that feels and what that moment means, right? No doubt. And to be able to help somebody get there is priceless. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. That, that is awesome. I mean, because we're always constantly looking for reasons why, right? To explain, like, why, why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why do I even exist? And stuff like that answers it, yep. right? That's when you get that affirmation that, yeah, I'm in the right spot. Yep. Like my life's in the right place. I'm where I'm supposed to be. Yep. Like this is good shit. Yeah. And so then I'm like, you know, this is uh, somewhere I can give back to. You know yep. what I mean? Because it wasn't long before that, that I'd got the home too. You know what I mean? And and although I, I, I'd, I'd gotten a few things, like I said, but it was something um, I always felt like you had to do, Right. But certainly once I received the home, I was like, well, this is official. You know what I mean? It, you really have to pay that forward in some way. There's no way, I don't know, I could win the lottery. I could make a ton of money in the next 10 years. Who knows? The reality is right now, I wouldn't be able to buy somebody else a home. I can't pay it forward like that. Right. But I can go and be a better human in the community, right? And I can go out and help inspire folks and then help others uh reach whatever goals they are because the now the athletes i have when i show up to class and i get a new athlete the first day we go over what their goals are because now their goals are my goals yep, yep. and we're going to reach them together in nine weeks yep so let's go you know and man it it, it is really impactful because you never know what you're creating by cre helping them create that routine and discipline, right? Yep. Because maybe that 
gets them to go get that job or to go apply for school or whatever it there's is. really no telling because it, there's not. Something you mentioned earlier, and I don't remember who you, we were talking about, but you were saying, and maybe it was uh, uh, um, uh, service members. They don't see themselves as athletes, right? Right, yeah. Well, we get lots of people that show up to the program that wouldn't consider themselves an athlete at all. The reality is if you're a human being, you have some athleticism. No doubt. Now, some of us are going to have more than others. It's yeah. just a fact. But the reality is we're all an athlete and you can't forget that. And so we, we help them re-identify that back as an athlete mm-hmm. and then actually fully accept that, not just say, oh, yeah, I'm an athlete. No, they actually know they are by the time they leave. Right. Yep. And we've proved that to them. And then, you know, just proving that, you know, staying with it with some consistency is going to improve the quality of your life beyond what you could imagine. No question. And, you know, um, you can either do it or not, but we highly recommend that you stick with it. Yep. You know, and so, uh, and then we try to make sure that they're going to do something. You know, we try to, it's not like we can link them up with everybody, but the reality is you've got to get involved in something and immerse yourself in it. Yeah. That's why in the beginning for me, it was the Spartan races, right? Yeah. And then COVID hit and ruined my whole year. I ended up on a mountain bike. And now my passion is in mountain biking. Nice. You know, so. And you just got done training the guy with all that stuff with mountain biking and just got back from a mountain biking trip. So right? he did some. Uh, yeah. He, uh, I'm not sure how much a bike he rode because his footwork still isn't there. But I did bring the bike for several weeks. Mm-hmm. And we tried to gauge where he was at to see if he would be able to, to ride an upright or not. Gotcha. And we, it just, it, it just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and it, you know, it's, 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 it's uh, people, even when people with balance, you get them on a bike, all of a sudden that changes. And oh yeah. Scared. It's rolls. You can fall. But he, you know, this guy had lost enough footwork, even though we had brought some of that back. I didn't feel it was safe for him to be on an upright. Gotcha. You know, a, a hand crank. Yeah. All day long. Right. Yep. Cause that's different. And those are pretty cool too. Oh yeah. Um, and, and those even have a little bit of electric power so that you can go, and, Nice. you know, so, but they, you know, the, the, the level that we brought him back to just in the nine weeks I had him was pretty amazing. You know what I mean? Um, because he had lost a lot of footwork, even for walking or standing or balance issues. Mm-hmm. And then we worked on all that a lot. And then we worked on strengthening his legs, you know what I mean, which also helped. And so where what he has normally every year, people digress every single year. We actually made him progress this year nice, and gain some of that back, which with his condition is extremely difficult. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Well, man, we've been going at this for a really long time. We're, we're, I feel like we've you've just about covered it, haven't we? Yeah, we're about three. We're about three and a half, four hours into it at this point. I think, yeah. man, um, I'm so honored that you came on, dude. Really, because you know, like we briefly mentioned, we met like back in 2013, and have had had a few encounters through the nonprofit space, uh, through the golf stuff. But I've really watched you from afar, um, and man. You really just, I really appreciate the way that you live your life um, and the character that you carry forward um, and the example that you try to be for like your kids and everybody else watching. Um, 
do you have any piece of advice for, man, not necessarily even somebody that's struggling with the same injury you are, but just in the suck right now, yeah. right? And it's just sucking with life and can't figure out how the hell to get out of it. Yeah. Well, first thing I'm going to say is the same thing that we all do. You know what? Never quit. Yeah. You never quit. You, you, uh, you know, and it's another thing that I use with my athletes now, right? Listen, we can get anywhere you want to go. But if you're not willing to fight through the struggle to get to the other side, you're never going to make it. Yeah. So don't quit. Embrace the struggle. It will not last forever. Right. Hard times don't last. Hard people do. There you go. There you go. Couldn't say it any better, man. That's awesome. Um, Dude, honored to have you. Thank you for your time. It was an honor, man. And thank you for having me, Uh, brother. I feel the same. You know, it, it was it was my honor and pleasure to do this. So, you know, I just hope uh, whatever we get put out that it even if it just helps one person somewhere, then that would be well worth it. Agreed. Yep. Agreed. And that's why I'm doing this. You know, like if I can affect one person's life in a positive manner through all the episodes that I put out, I'm good. Yeah. You know, so that's what matters. But no, man, thanks. Um, it's been a fun day. Yeah, man. And we got another day and a half to do it. So let's get after it. Let's do it. Later. Later. I really appreciate Randy taking the time to sit down and share his story with us over this two-part series. It's been an honor to sit with a man like Randy who's given so much for our freedom, but has also went on to use his platform to affect others' lives and make changes in others' lives and help them meet their goals and overcome the obstacles in their life with the Adaptive Training Foundation and also seeing him stay involved with the Special Forces Foundation. You can keep track of Randy on social media. You can see, you can follow him on Instagram at Nance Randy. And then he's all, you can also find him on Facebook at Randy Nance. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation as much as I have. If you like the content that we're putting out, please help us spread the word. Leave a review. Leave a rating. Comment on social media. Share on social media. Tell your friends about it. Help us spread the word and spread our message. Help us grow. Until next time, always forward.